This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your big Wednesday Buckeye Talk. This one's long. That's how we do it on Wednesdays. Doug Lay Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. We have a lot of good stuff for you guys coming. But don't forget to listen to the Daily Pods Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, half hour, 45 minutes. Keeping you updated on what's going on. But Big Wednesday is what Buckeye Talk is all about. Here's what we're doing on this podcast. We are going to start our preview of Ohio State opponents. This will take us through the next 12 weeks of the Wednesday Buckeye Talks. And we are going to go in order of the 2020 schedule. And we are going to have opposing beat writers on. So on this podcast, I have already done a half an hour interview with Mick Petrovich, the Bowling Green, basically the only Bowling Green football beat writer in the world. He covers Bowling Green for the Toledo Blade. He covered Ohio State for a little bit. He's an excellent journalist. We had a very interesting conversation about the 2020 Bowling Green team about what Mac schools are doing in the age of coronavirus. Should Ohio State play teams like this? Everything from the Bowling Green perspective. And then Nathan, Steven, and I are going to come back and talk about, will a Mac team ever beat Ohio State? Will a Mac team ever beat Ohio State? In the last 14 years, the Mac has 30 wins over the Big Ten. And in that 14-year period, every single Big Ten team has lost at least once to a Mac team, except for Wisconsin and Ohio State. So we have our tech subscribers talking about that. Nathan, Steven, and I are going to talk about that. And we're then, the second half of the podcast, we're going to revisit the defensive failures of the 2018 season. Now that we know how many defenders are NFL draft picks off that year, we all went back and watched the Purdue game and the Maryland game, and it's a final, final, how can a team with that many future NFL guys play defense that poorly so if you feel like reliving that we're going to live we're going to relive it so we have a lot coming at you steven and nathan you guys can say hello before we get to nick i don't want nick's voice to be the second voice that people hear on this podcast steven say hello to the people hello world steven you have been talking to a couple recruits uh the first two guys in the 2022 class um what do you think of those two interviews that you've done and everybody you should be reading those interviews that steven has uh, they're up at cleveland.com slash OSU. What'd you think of the kids? Yeah, with Tegra to Shabola, he looks at himself as the Jack Miller, Harris Johnson Jr. of his class. The Ohio native who's also a highly rated guy who is could end up who could go anywhere in the country but wants to stay home. And that's been the staple of these – to start the decade, that's been the staple of Ohio State's classes. A highly rated Ohio guy who is a leader in the class and one of the head recruiters and, you know, bringing in other guys and – Ohio State's 2020 class was number five in the country, and Jack Miller's the leader of the 2021 class, which is right now running away with the number one ranking in the class. And he wants to be that exact same thing for 2022. A lot of these guys that I talked to have been talking about this being the era of Ohio State football when it comes to dominating the recruiting rankings, and that starts with him. And then Jair Brown, 
quite he's the third Louisiana player to ever come up here and play for Ohio State. Well, he will be when he gets here. And he wants to change that. There's a lot of guys who are down there in Louisiana right now. He named Jacoby the number one safety in, the, in Louisiana is one of the guys he wants to bring with him from Louisiana. He wants to open up that pipeline, which has never existed for Ohio State. So, you know, Ohio, getting two, two guys two years early who clearly have an agenda for what they want to be in Ohio State's recruiting class. That's a lovely thought by that young man from Louisiana, but he is yeah. originally from Ohio, is he not? He is, which almost makes him the perfect person to do this. Yeah, it also makes he's already, him. He's got the connection. So, but do you, do you think if there was a kid who, who was in Ohio and grew up in Louisiana but now lived in Ohio and committed to LSU, do you think that means that he would take two or three other guys from Ohio and take them I, to LSU? I think I, this is a pipe dream. Yeah, it's obvious. Yeah, it's 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 a long, you know, that's a hard thing to accomplish. There, maybe he gets one other guy to come with him. But yeah, I don't, I mean, you know, yeah, it's a it's a long shot for him to be able to accomplish this. It's, as we have talked on this podcast before, and as you noted, Stephen, Ohio State does a great job of finding recruits nationally with Ohio connections. That's why they got this kid. Mm-hmm. They also do a great job of going to weak areas where the home state team is down. The home state team in Louisiana just won the no. national championship, and they are recruiting at a monster level. It's not just Joe Burrow. They just they, they dominated the the NFL draft more than Ohio State did. They had fourteen picks. In the 2020 NFL draft, Ohio State had 10. Everything Ohio State is selling right now, LSU is also selling in the same way. I will believe a Louisiana pipeline to Ohio when I see it. But you appreciate a kid wanting to take a shot. Nathan, how was it covering in the end? We've already talked about the, the NFL draft. Did it drain you? Having done this maybe with Purdue before, did it drain you covering 10 Ohio State guys being picked in three days? I did do it with Purdue once where, and I'm trying to remember who they had drafted. It might have been the the, uh, Anthony Brown year, but essentially where you were looking, covering the draft with Purdue most years was, are they going to have the one guy drafted that's going to keep their NFL draft streak alive? Because for a while they had like a, I think it was like, it got up to like 20 years NFL draft streak. And that was like one of the things that they could kind of hang their hat on. Um, Though again, that's kind of modest relative to some of the other programs in the big 10, but um, it was mostly about waiting to see if the one guy would go and then you're just trying to catch all of the UDAs at the end or UDFAs. Um, so I think the, the biggest thing about this weekend for me was that long lull to start day three, right? Where you go, we kind of expected maybe someone like KJ Hill or, or someone like that would go in the fourth or fifth round. You get to spread things out a little bit, and you just waited through the fourth round, waited through the fifth round, got into the sixth round, and nobody's getting taken. There was a 100-pick gap of no Ohio, no Ohio State guys after you had five in the first 75. So for me, that was maybe the worst part was that you kind of do – you work ahead to be ready to just kind of crank stuff out, and then you're just kind of sitting there waiting. And, 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 the, and that's the thing about the day three of the draft for a journalist, if you cover a, a good team, is – Every single pick could be one of your guys or none of them could be one of your guys, really. And that's kind of what played out. Of all the amazing NFL draft numbers for Ohio State, I think this is as amazing as anything. Ohio State's streak of consecutive years with a pick is only 22 years because in 1998, no Buckeyes got drafted. In 1997, Ohio State had two of the first three picks. Orlando Pace was the first pick. Sean Springs was the third pick in 1997. 1998, nobody, which is just stunning to think about a world 
where you cover the NFL draft and there are no Buckeyes picked. I was right, by the way, Anthony Brown in the sixth round. I know people were really probably worried about that. So went to the Cowboys and he became a starter eventually there. So he's doing well. Congratulations, Purdue. All right. We want to get, we have two <laughs> topics we'll hit. That's another slogan for our Buckeye Talk t-shirts. Congratulations, Purdue. That was so sarcastic. Uh, well, we're going to come back to that, I think, later in this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so we before we get to the uh, could a MAC team ever beat Ohio State and revisiting the defensive failures of 2018 from the 570 our good friend Luke from Denver who is a busy texter Nathan I want to ask you about your comments on the pod where you doubted how fair it was to give Ryan Day credit for Joe Burrow's development while Joe Brady definitely helped Joe Burrow understand the NFL pass happy offense I think it's unfair to not give Ryan a significant credit for how he developed Joe Burrow I understand during Joe Burrow's first year at LSU he stunk but that is more a testimony to how awful LSU's offensive approach was before Joe Brady than it is to how much improvement Joe Burrow needed to do. There is a reason why it was a highly competitive competition between Burrow and Haskins and that Haskins ended up being invited to New York as part of the 2018 Heisman ceremony. You and I discussed this, Nathan, a little bit before we came on. You were sort of like, what did I say? What do you think of Luke's comments? Yeah. You want to defend yourself. I can't remember what you I, said either. I, I, I honestly don't remember. It wasn't something I don't think that I said with a lot of conviction because I'm sitting here right now and don't have a lot of conviction about this topic. <laughs> another, um, that's another Buckeye Talk t-shirt slogan. It wasn't something I said with a lot of conviction. <laughs> Buckeye I Talk. Think, I think <laughs> what I probably – I probably because here's the thing. Ryan Day keeps bringing that up. In relation to, he brought it up Saturday to a question, or Sunday, to a question I asked about developing first-round picks as part of his long-term plan at Ohio State. And I think I, I in, in referencing that, I probably mentioned, like, he's throwing Joe Burrow in that, and I don't know how, you, I don't know if that's fair, or you can decide if that's fair or not. I think I said something like that. And I, that is still... That is a nebulous argument that I guess people can have. I think you're right, though. I mean, and, he, and Luke is right. You do have to give Ryan Day some credit. I mean, as as you pointed out when we were talking, um, you know, Ryan Day comes in in the in the off season of 2017. So he's got a, the, the the fall and the season of t- summer fall 2017 to work with Joe Burrow at, at that stage of his career. Kind of a a an inflection point, really, a, a crucial part of his development that of a young quarterback into the spring of 2018 where there's obviously a quarterback battle going on against another future first-round NFL draft pick, a guy who's going to rewrite Ohio State's record books that fall. And and Ryan Day's overseeing that and, and watching those guys push each other, helping those guys push each other. I And I think Joe Burrow himself, I mean, let's let that be the ultimate authority on this question. He has said that experiences he had at Ohio State, whether that was with Ryan Day, Urban Meyer, whoever, helped him become the quarterback he eventually was at LSU. Not saying that it only happened because he went to Ohio State. Obviously, um, Brady and the guys at, at OSU or LSU, I'm sorry, get a lot of credit too. But yeah, certainly Ryan Day does get some credit because he helped bring Burrow along at a pretty important time in his career. So if it was, if there was an insinuation that I was saying that Ryan Day had no um, influence on on the quarterback that Joe Burrow became. Um, that wasn't intentional, and it would obviously be kind of lunacy because, again, Joe Burrow is the one out there saying that's not true. So, so it is, you know, Joe Burrow recruited by Tom Herman, played two years for Tim Beck as his quarterback's coach, only one year with Ryan Day, but the way the calendar went, Ryan Day did have him two springs. So Ryan Day, it's like you look, well, he only had him 17 for the season because that was Ryan Day's first year at Ohio State, um, and it was Joe Burrow's last year. 
but he had him spring of 17, season of 17, spring of 18. So that is, as you mentioned, Nathan, that I think is worth mentioning. Um, And and I think also, just to be fair, just to be clear, I do think I'm not even really mocking that Ryan Day brings it up in relation to what Ohio State has done as far as developing first round talent, because I think all's fair in love and war and recruiting kind of. And, and, and this is something I would be selling the players. I'd be like, Hey, um, you know, this is going to be when, when Justin Fields goes in the first round next year, that's going to be three in a row for us. You know, I know Joe Burrow didn't end up here, but look where he started. Like, you know, I had a hand in that. We had a hand in that, however you want to say it. So I, I, I totally understand that that's something I think it's fair for him to bring up too. Yeah. And then we can call it out. Urban Meyer claimed Cam Newton. It's like Cam Newton was it? I mean, Urban Meyer identified <laughs> Cam Newton, recruited him mm. to Florida. Cam had the off-field issues, left, went to junior college, and then became Heisman winner, national champion, number one pick in the draft at Auburn. And if you ask Urban Meyer how many first-round quarterbacks had you would develop, I guarantee whatever the number is, it includes Cam Newton. He said it. Like Urban Meyer's like, hey, we develop quarterbacks here. Alex Smith, who he had for like, you know, he inherited at Utah certainly helped turn into the number one pick Tim Tebow, who was not really an NFL quarterback and Cam Newton. So it's like, I get guys claiming it. Also, we are here to call BS to some degree when we hear it. And I'm going to call it, I'm going to call this out because that's what I do from the five, one, five message to Doug. I get your argument on Burrow, not being a Buckeye, but also aren't you the guy that argues Russell Wilson isn't a Wisconsin guy because he was a grad transfer and only there for one year. Yes. Burrow is at LSU for two, but the same concept. I do argue that Russell Wilson is a fake badger, fraudulent badger, fraudulent badger, fraudulent badger, fraudulent badger. Real Wisconsin quarterbacks are like Scott Tolzien and Jack Cohn. Okay. So maybe this kid, this, the, the kid that Ohio state wanted, I can't remember his name, Grant something, right. He's going to be the, is it Grant? Is it Hatcher? What's his name? I can't remember the guy who, the guy who's going to be the quarterback this coming season, who was a freshman Ooh. last year. Somebody looked Ooh. that up. Oh, Ohio State wanted him and didn't get him. Maybe Wisconsin will develop a quarterback someday, but they didn't do anything to develop Russell Wilson. But here is why Russell Wilson as a Badger is much different than Joe Burrow as an LSU Tiger. Russell Wilson in his career. Graham Mertz. Graham Mertz. I knew it was like a Graham Hatcher kind of name. I'm going to call him Hatcher. Hatcher Mertz, just like Toby Muse. Okay, so Russell Wilson – Paul, do you think that Hatcher could someday develop into the next Russell Wilson? Russell Wilson in his career at NC State, where he was a three-year starter. Russell Wilson threw 682 passes at NC State. He threw 225 passes at Wisconsin. Russell Wilson played 36 games at NC State. He played 14 at Wisconsin. So what is he? He's NC State. He's the first school not the second school. Joe Burrow threw 39 passes at Ohio State. He threw 906 at LSU. He played 10 games at Ohio State. He played 28 at LSU. So which school is Joe Burrow? He's the second school, not the first school. I like when people text me questions. I also like it when I'm able to bury their question with cold, hard facts. It's not anywhere close to the same. I'm not saying Joe Burrow is a fake Buckeye, like the way I say Russell Wilson is a fake Badger. I'm just saying on the credit meter, right, on the credit meter, let's just chill out like a little bit on the Ohio State credit for a guy who threw 39 passes on the field. 
like probably three of them were and probably three of them were in a meaningful snap. And and this is all as everything that I do, it's just a reaction to someone else's reaction. It's like, do they get some credit for him? Certainly. Certainly they deserve some credit. But then all of a sudden it goes a little bit over the top and it's like, okay, I got one number for you. It's 906 to 39. Um, all right. Let's get to the interview. Nick Petrovich, Toledo Blade. This kicks it off. And so you know what this means? This, mean, this means next Wednesday is going to be a big, fat, juicy Oregon podcast. Oregon is the week two opponent in 2020. That one we're going to go long on. We're going to talk a lot about Oregon because, of course, you would talk three times longer about Oregon than you would about Bowling Green. So if you want to be involved with this, if you want to send questions next week, what we should ask the Oregon beat writer Sign up for the texts, 614-350-3315. We got some more subscribers this last week that put us over a threshold that made our boss so happy that he sent us a congratulatory email. So thanks to everyone who is a new subscriber on the texts. If you haven't tried it, try it now. 14-day free trial, $3.99 a month. Send a text to 614-350-3315. Here we go. Talking Bowling Green for the next half hour. And then we'll come back and discuss, will a Mac team ever beat Ohio State? You're listening to Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. All right, we're talking Bowling Green, baby. Nick Petrovich from The Blade. I, no doubt about it, the finest sports writer at the Toledo Blade has to work with a couple of hacks named Dave Briggs and Kyle Rowland. Nick, I don't know how you do it, but you still manage to do great work. Thank you for joining us here on Buckeye Talk. No worries. It's a it's a low bar that I'm happy to stumble over each and every day. Yes, it is. But you but you don't just say I'm just going to be a little bit better than Roland and Briggs. You say I'm going to be a lot better than those guys. Uh, Nick also has uh, experience covered Ohio State for a little bit now covers Bowling Green uh, in every facet possible. Um, Nick, I'm, I'm going to throw a curveball at you to start because I know you're you're you think about these kind of things a lot. You cover sort of like the business of sports that you look into college athletics more than just, you know, as a football team, a basketball team winning games. How tough is it for a school like Bowling Green and for teams in the MAC right now with what's going on with the coronavirus? This is going to be a huge thing. I wrote about this, not this past Sunday, but the one before, just because MAC schools are so reliant on money that is not generated as you would at a school, especially like Ohio State. Bowling Green, for example, their entire athletic budget is about $26 million. Half of that money comes from students. Their single biggest revenue source is their own student body in the form of student fees, which are mandatory and you pay with tuition. A lot of kids go to Mac schools for a lot of reasons, and typically the sports teams are not one of them. So they don't know what's going to happen with enrollment. They're expecting less money from the state, and they don't know whether these lucrative out of conference contracts are actually going to be fulfilled. So if you're seeing huge declines in all three of those, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, some schools have already cut programs. I know Akron and the MAC has already said they're going to do a 20% reduction. So financially, these are going to be really hard times. And I don't, to be honest with you, I have no idea what's going to happen in the next couple of months, though I fear schools at this level are going to try to cut sports if they can. All right, now you've piqued my interest. So, like, we'll get to the football stuff eventually, but it, do you believe that in the long run, the best thing for schools like Bowling Green is to play football at the same level 
of competition as schools like Ohio State, or do you believe there would be a world where to separate the levels, um, much like it is between FBS and FCS right now? Would that be some kind of a better world for Bowling Green, or does Bowling Green have to play at this level because that's our best chance to make money? They okay. Your question, as far as you are looking at it from a real perspective, that is a non-starter with the MAC. There's no way they are considering that. However, I think the real answer is yes, because you're already at that disadvantage where no school in the MAC or in the group of five, for that matter, will ever be allowed to this party. So they can put the college football playoff logo on anything they want. They're not invited, and I think we all know that. We just watched UCF go 12-0 and twice. I don't think they ever got ranked higher than eighth. They were never considered part of that. You look at, like, the two best seasons in MAC history since the start of the BCS. One was Northern Illinois, went 13-0, and and then got to go get its doors blown off by Florida State in, BC, in the Orange Bowl. The other was Western Michigan, went 13-0, and went to lose to Wisconsin in the Cotton Bowl. That is the gold standard. That is what you're chasing. That is the best thing out there for you. So a lot of, play, a lot of people, particularly on the economic side, and among MAC faculty have argued, why don't you just drop down to a level where you can actually be competitive because you're just chasing your tail if you ever think that you're going to compete with the, the real heavyweights in college football. Yeah, I mean, and we have enough examples of it. People realize what football is at Youngstown State and the, the fun that those fans have had trying to chase a title. I worked on the East Coast. I covered Delaware football where, you know, I covered a game, um, actually didn't cover it, but I sort of half covered it, when Ryan Day was the quarterback at New Hampshire and played against Delaware. And you could not tell those people in Delaware and New Hampshire that that their game was at a lesser level. It was a high-level football game against the best competition in their level of football, knowing that if you win that game, it sets you up to have a chance at a championship. And I, I think there's a lot of satisfaction in that. So it's easy for, I mean, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of the Mac as, as well as I should, but it always is a little befuddling to me. Like when you say it's just a non-starter um, and you laid out such good reasons, it's just like, what, what would it ever take for the powers that be to come around to something like that? Or they, are they just going to just say, no, 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 no. Yeah. I, I there. They wouldn't consider that, although they think the experts that I talked to, I asked if this is finally the financial breaking point where things are actually going to change. And they were pretty pessimistic, to be honest with you. They thought they would do anything to preserve football and basketball at this level. And the exact quote I got from um, uh, Donna Lopiano, the former women's athletic director at Texas, is they will throw everyone else under the bus. That is, uh, that is, uh, that is, that is interesting. I mean, it's not hard to believe, but it's just like, um, you know, if this doesn't do it, it's like, what would ever do it? Um, okay. All right. Let's talk a little football with Bowling Green. And this is a program that you look, you know, once upon a time, Urban Meyer was in charge there. Uh, when Urban Meyer left after the 2002 season, Greg Brandon took over, had some levels of success. Then Dave Clawson, Dave Clawson parlayed this into the job at Wake Forest. Dino Babers came along two years, parlayed that into the job at Syracuse. Mike Jinks, not great. And now they're at Scott Loeffler, Bowling Green three and nine last year. Like Nick, where, where is the program in its arc 
right now? Is it is it bending back up? Is it kind of down? Is it lost a little bit? Does it have a clear path? Where's the program? Uh, it is in the early stages of picking up the shambles of the cart going off the roller coaster and crashing into the ground is about where they are right now. For the people that are uninitiated with the Mac or maybe with this team in general, the roster building at Bowling Green, with the possible exception of Kansas, may have been the worst in FBS. Last year, when they walked off the field at Buffalo, which was their final game of the season, they had four seniors who had signed with them out of high school. They were under 70 scholarship kids. Um, their recruiting classes have washed out at rates of higher than 50% the past couple of years. They, and Leffler, when Leffler coached his first game at, against Morgan State, he was the seventh coach um, either full-time or interim since the start of the 2013 MAC championship game. No one in the country has had more than that. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. It's not great. It, um, it, it, it really got off, off kilter with jinx that, that they took a little risk with that hire. Um, and it just missed. He was just overmatched. He just wasn't the right guy. Or were there other things going on? No, I, the start of it happened at the administrative level and it started under Babers. Babers got a roster that was ready to win and he patched it and he did. He won and he got out. However, the problem was that the program wasn't really being built to last, particularly on either line. I think he recruited only two kids on the offensive line that ever even started a game at any point. In his two recruiting classes, had more than half of their kids not finish their eligibility at Bowling Green. I did a story on this in December. And what I did was a big Excel spreadsheet where I tracked every single kid that came to the program over this period of time. And I would fill in a square completely black for a year of eligibility that was not used at Bowling Green. And by the end of it, it looked like a crossword puzzle. So they had a point where they really needed to hire a builder after Babers left for Syracuse and their former athletic director became infatuated with an assistant coach at Texas Tech who had never been to the state of Ohio and had hired all first-time coordinators. Doug, I don't know if you remember this. It was on the beat in the first game was 16, Ohio State's coaches were openly admitting they had no idea what was coming because no one on the other staff had ever called the play. Very tricky. Look at that next level thinking by Bowling Green. Let's hire guys who've never done this and really throw a curveball at Ohio State. Yeah, it almost worked. They, uh, they were only 67 points away. Um, okay, so Scott Leffler, he's a guy, uh, he's a Michigan guy. He uh, has experience all over uh, big-time college football um, at Florida, uh, Virginia Tech, came from Boston College. This seems more like a traditional, and again, he's going into year two, more of a traditional kind of Mac hire. Does he more fit um, the, the kind of guys that you see come through the Mac as head coaches? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, from the point where I am standing right now, if you draw a, a circle of four hours, um, you're getting, you know, Columbus, Chicago, Indianapolis, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, up into Detroit. You have almost every kid you need to win the MAC in that footprint. And you're going to be made or broken on how you recruit that area. For the most part, so far, Leffler's done a really good job there. They had the second rated class in the MAC this past year, a class that was completely full of high school kids. 
he's been recruiting this area for 20 plus years. So he already had the connections and was ready to go. So from that end, they're off to a pretty good start. However, they're well aware that this is not an overnight fix, that it, it wasn't possible for this roster to be fixed overnight. So they, they expect it to take a few years and they really negotiated this, to be honest with you. The thing that he wanted more than anything was the commodity that's almost never given to coaches now, which is time. He told them, I don't care what the buyout is. And I believe his buyout is a million to leave in the first two years, which for a max, by max standards is pretty big. So they expect this to be a four or five year project and next year is two. Okay. So they're probably not going to beat Ohio state in the opener. Is that what we're saying? I'd say that's fair. Yeah. Okay. For, for what this game is going to go like, let's start on the offensive side of the ball. Pieces, are there pieces, at least a skill guy to look out for? Can they run it better? Can they throw it better? Or is, it, is there so much flux that it's hard to get a handle on that part of it? Yeah, I think they have three kids that are, um, that are power five level players. First one is the quarterback who we haven't seen yet. His name is Matt McDonald. He is a transfer from Boston College where Leffler previously was the offensive coordinator. He won the job outright last year, was going to be their starting quarterback. He was clearly the best option they had. And in the quarterback immediate eligibility roulette, they got, they got left out. So he was told no by the NCAA um, and then had to sit out the year. They have another kid, a big tight end receiver hybrid named Quentin Morris, who is going to be one of the, the better pass catchers in the MAC. He, his numbers were up there for tight ends. He had a really good game at Notre Dame last year. And then their running back is named Andrew Clare. I think particularly with Clare and Morris, I don't know that they're necessarily draft picks, but I think they're certainly guys that will get looks at the next, at this time, uh, whenever they come out. And that's always interesting, right? I mean, I think for, for any Ohio State fan, you know, there's, there's often guys, I'm trying to think, um, I think it was the year, I think Ohio State played Western Michigan when Corey Davis was there. If that's right, like, and th there's guys sometimes that pop up that it's like, oh, man, there's some guys, like, it's fun to see, um, you know, this Bryant tight end that Ohio State just played with FAU in the opener last year. He goes in the fourth round of the NFL draft. So sometimes it's, it is an interesting look at some of these um, maybe overlooked guys from schools who, who do have big-time potential. Defensive side of the ball, or is there something that Bowling Green's going to be able to do to try to slow down Justin Fields and this passing attack, or what stands out? That's it, it. There's a very good likelihood that that part will be ugly. Sim they're just not there yet in terms of the lines in defensively in the past few years. That's been, that's been pretty brutal. I mean, before 2016, um, the program record for points allowed in a 12 game season was like, I, I think just over 410 and they have allowed 450 points or more four years in a row. They just haven't been able to stop anybody, particularly on the run. And I remember thinking last year, they played one of their final games of the season. They played Ohio. And Ohio's whole thing is they're a power running team. They're just, they look the same every single year. And I knew it was going to be a long night, and it, and it really was. I think they hung, I think it was 66 on Bowling Green. They just haven't been able to stop anybody's running attack. Anybody with a competent running attack has pretty much just rammed it at them over and over and over. So, uh, Nick, I, I just want you to know my style of, of being a podcast host is 
I do very little prep beforehand, and then I scramble, 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 and try to come up with information during the podcast itself. So I'm looking now at the, the bios of Scott Leffler and Ryan Day, and maybe because you are a more competent reporter than me, maybe you've had conversations with Scott about this. He and Ryan Day are kind of dancing on the same dance floor during their careers here a little bit. Actually, it turns out that in 2011, Scott Leffler was Temple's offensive coordinator, and then he left to be Auburn's offensive coordinator, and the guy who replaced him as Temple's offensive coordinator was Ryan Day. And then they both, yes. they both danced at Boston College. Do these guys know each other? Have you ever talked to Scott Leffler about Ryan Day? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I Specifically from a recruiting standpoint, we were just kind of shooting the breeze at one point last year. And I said, I think the question that most people had after the coaching switch was, you know, what's, how can this team recruit at the same level that they did under Urban? And he, he kind of laughed. He's like, oh, he can do it. He can absolutely do it. So they've definitely crossed paths. So the question is, so there's, and then there's a spin back the other way. It's just both these guys, boy, oh boy, I can see you, you and I are going to be writing like competing stories on the same paths on this, Nick. Yours will be better. But like Scott Leffler and Ryan Day, both in their own way are still working, are working in the shadow of Urban Meyer. How, what is the shadow that Urban still casts on the Bowling Green program? Is it, is it small? Is it big? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it like, wow, remember those glory days with Urban Meyer? Or is it sort of a thing that makes it impossible for coaches to live up to when it turns out that one of the maybe 10 or 15 best college football coaches ever got his first head coaching job at your school? Yeah, it's, it very much looms over. It's kind of interesting to see how this changed because I actually grew up in this area and my parents are Bowling Green season ticket holders. And I remember they hired some receivers coach from Notre Dame and nobody knew who the hell it was. And I knew the players from having talked to them were kind of disappointed. They didn't even get a coordinator. And here, lo and behold, it became, it became either, you know, one of the best college football coaches in, in history. And I think he's second winning percentage behind only Dwight Perry. So when you evaluate the job now, one of the things that Urban himself has always said is that he looked back in the media guide and they had a winning record against all but one other Mac team. You can win at this job. And I think, I think you were on the beat when a bunch of his recruits came incredibly close and maybe should have beaten Ohio State at the shoe, I think 2003. And it's shown over and over that this is a really attractive job if you're a first-time coach because you can come here and you can win. You can recruit around your campus. People generally, for the most part, care about this football program. And even though you don't have anywhere close to the resources that you would like to, compared to the rest of your league, you can go from 12th to 1st relatively quickly. So this should be a team that on a consistent basis is competing for the MAC championship. I would say... I would say that, but the thing that's so weird about the MAC, if, especially if you watch the Big Ten all of the time, is that the gap between one and twelve is so little. In my, just in my lifetime, almost every single school in the MAC has had its day, where you get to even even Eastern Michigan, who was horrible forever, has been pretty competent under Chris Creighton as like a regular bowl team. And you go down the line, Kent State's usually not very good. They've won the MAC. Ohio is horrible forever. They've been pretty solid under Frank Solich. That gap is different in the MAC, whereas like 
Rutgers and Indiana, I don't care what you do, you're never winning the Big Ten. We, I, we just all know that's not going to happen. The MAC is different. Is it that at that level, um, with a similarity in resources and a similarity in tradition, that a, a head coach with force of personality and a recruiting plan can make even more of a difference? That, that, is that what you feel like swings? You know, you just mentioned some guys, again, that Eastern Michigan guy, I don't know anything about it. I've heard national college football people talk about the job he's done at Eastern Michigan because, as you said, they've been terrible, and now all of a sudden they're competitive. Is that how much difference a good head coach can make in that league? Yeah, absolutely, because you change your recruiting future here. When you're consistently hitting on the type of kids that the Big Ten misses, and there are a lot of them, you can absolutely win this league on two or three really good classes. And the Chris Creighton thing, I, why no one else has hired that guy is completely beyond me. Because if you can take Eastern Michigan to a bowl, I, man, you can do a lot of stuff in college football. And the thing you have to be able to do is to consistently identify those guys that get missed. And even in the recruiting rankings, huddle highlights era, there are still quite a few of those guys. Bowling Green, for example, just had a kid um, named Scott Miller, who's a re little receiver. I used to joke with him that he was the only kid I'd ever interviewed besides a kicker who was my size. And he was a sprinter in Illinois. He got one FBS offer, ended up becoming one of the best receivers to ever play at BG, gets drafted by the Buccaneers and caught his first touchdown in Detroit last year where he had won a MAC championship a couple of years before that. So those types of kids are out there. And when you hit on enough of them, that usually means you win the MAC. So Scott Leffler, 45 years old, former Michigan quarterback, has coached at Central Michigan, Michigan with the Lions, Florida Temple, Auburn, Virginia Tech, Boston College, and now this is his first head coaching job. Um, you know, you're, you're covering this guy every day, so I'm not, like, trying to put you on the spot about what he is, but he, does he seem like the, the type of guy who maybe can be the type of guy we're talking about that is the kind of recruiter and has the kind of force of personality. Not everybody's PJ Fleck, not everybody's Urban Meyer. I understand that, but a lot of different types of coaches um, with, with types of styles have one in the Mac. It, does he maybe seem like the kind of guy who could maybe be that? Yeah, for sure. Because his vision aligns what, with what Bowling Green has been when it has been at its best. He sold that vision better than anyone else when they were looking to hire a coach, his wife is actually a BG grad. So he wants to get this program back to where it was. And he's been very candid about the way you can get a head coaching job. Currently, the way coaching has trended, he said in his career, where you can go find a job where someone was building a program, didn't win enough immediately, ran out of time, then you can swoop in, patch as quickly as possible, and then get out of Dodge. He has said over and over that is not his goal. He wants to actually build this program to the point where it's stable the way Dave Clawson had previously. And everything that he said that he wanted to do at his introductory press conference and then through most of his first year, he did. He stuck to the plan. I mean, he had a team last year where he was just absolutely pulling his hair out frustrated. But so far, he has stuck to his guns. And he seems to be the person that really, really wants to ride this out long-term here. In your opinion, Nick, um, it's it just so hard at, at a place like the Mac, if you're great, 
you're probably gone pretty quick. And if you're terrible, you're probably fired pretty quick. What, what in the end is better for a program like Bowling Green? Urban Meyer was there two years, eight and three, nine and three, and he's gone. Followed by Greg Brandon, who wins with kind of Urban's guys his first two years, last six years, Brandon does. Then Dave Clawson comes in for five years. Like what's, if it, what would you pick for Bowling Green? Another Urban Meyer, like two really bright years and he's out? Or would you pick like six solid years? What's better for a program like Bowling Green from a head coach? The thing I always say that if you're a first time coach and you're going to come to the MAC, if you win, you're going to be there fewer than four years. And if you lose, you're never going to be a head coach again. So I think from the school's perspective, it's always better to, even if it's short-lived, like it was at Western Michigan, like it was at Bowling Green, like when you had that run with Dave Doran for Northern Illinois, it's great to have it, but it's just a fact of life that when you hit on a coach, someone else is going to hire him for an amount of money that you cannot pay. But you have to, it's all about, I think, at this level, enjoying the ride while you have it. Okay. All right. So specifically back to this game, Bowling Green at Ohio State in the opener. What do you think of games like this? You have covered them from both sides. Do you like these games? Is it a nice payout for a MAC team and there are kids who get a chance to play in Ohio Stadium and have an experience? Or is it some kind of charade where it's a glorified scrimmage? Ohio State only plays its starters for a half. Bowling Green doesn't really have a chance to compete and losing by, you know, nine touchdowns isn't really good for either side. Where are you on games like this? I think it depends because there have been times when Mac schools have come there and then scared them. And then other times when it's been a complete charade, Uh, particularly with the teams that are in FCS, I really don't like it because you're basically just, you're taking the paycheck to get your head kicked in. I think the FBS teams, at least in the group of five, when you have a good team, you want to at least do that once and see what's going on. But it's just so, when you look at it overall, it's just so tough to to turn down the money. Like they are going to make more money on one day at Ohio Stadium than the entire athletic program will likely make from every ticket they sell in every single one of their sports for the entire school year. So it's really difficult to turn that down. And I think it might be different with the, the six Ohio Mac schools playing at Ohio State because all those kids generally want to see, they want to take a swing at Ohio State once. They want to play in front of 110,000 people and said they did it. Um, the other ones, when you're going to like, whatever, to USC or to Texas or Kent State has gone to get its brains beaten in by Alabama several times. I don't know how much good that's doing for anybody other than your wallet. What will it take? We haven't seen it. We haven't seen it happen with Ohio State, but what is the scenario where a MAC team could ever beat Ohio State? And I've written about this at times over the years, and I always think it's an interesting discussion. You know, Ohio State has just dodged the bullet a couple times. Ohio State didn't, didn't play Ben Roethlisberger. I think they played, you know, Miami like around him, but they didn't play him when he was at his best you know they they didn't have to face the best pj fleck team at western michigan can you envision a day when 
you know, the best team in the MAC is on Ohio State's schedule and plays its best game and, and has a legitimate chance to go in and upset, you know, pull an upset that would shock the world? No doubt. I mean, it's going to take lightning in a bottle, but you get the right team in the right year. I think they could absolutely go there and win. However, as good as it is right now at Ohio State, and it's very, very good, history tells you that it probably won't be like this forever. You get one fluky thing that happens. Maybe you don't hit on a couple of recruiting classes, and then you get this one team that comes in there. It can happen. I mean, I remember I was actually a student at OU. I was moving into my dorm room at Ohio University, and they had the game on. They were playing, I think it was 08, and someone comes, runs up to the room and says, uh, hey, we're, we might beat Ohio State. I was like, what? Yeah, like, we're winning right now. And we ran. We all ran down to the dorm room to see OU was beating Ohio State. Hung around for three quarters, didn't make it happen. So it is possible. I think Ohio State was ranked like third or fourth at the time. It's going to take a really special MAC team. And more than that, it's probably going to take a really special quarterback where one of the MAC schools hits on an NFL guy. But I think it can be done. It's probably going to – it might take 100 tries, but I think – I think one out of those hundred could happen. Yeah, it is. It's, there, there's enough good quarterbacks that have come through the Mac, you know, that people just misevaluate in recruiting or something like that. Or sometimes even Nick, you know, I think a lot of times, even I think about this for schools like Indiana, you get in a situation sometimes you just get, you get a quarterback you like and you start him as a freshman. And by the end, he's a fourth year starter. And how many fourth year starters at quarterback are there in college football? And he knows everything. Right. And then maybe you're playing an Ohio State team that's breaking in a new five star quarterback. But I do think there are it has to be a very specific scenario. I remember that 08 game. I think people were going nuts. It was like uh, I just double checked it. Todd Beckman was at quarterback and there was a lot of frustration, like with the Trestle offense. 26-14. Ohio State was number three the second week of the year in 2008. And then everybody was very nervous because Ohio State was going to USC the next week. And it was like, oh, my gosh, if Ohio State <laughs> can't beat Ohio more convincingly than this, what's going to happen? And they went to USC and lost 35-3. to So, But that's a team – that's the 2008 Ohio State team that is coming off consecutive national championship game appearances. And in their second game of the year, Ohio University is scaring the crap out of them. So, yes, we have seen – I think there was a game one year, like I think Toledo was like throwing a pass into the end zone. Um, in the final minutes of the game, like for a tying touchdown. So there have been some close calls, but it's just never really happened. Um, and it sounds like this is not the year. This is not the year for Ohio State fans to be worried about that with the Bowling Green upset. No, if, uh, if you get him on the schedule again in 23 or 24, maybe, maybe this is a, a little more of a scare. But uh, I think just keeping this respectable would probably be a win in BG's case. All right, that's the opener for the Ohio State Buckeyes in the 2020 football season. Nick Petrovich from the Toledo Blade. Make sure you're reading his stuff. Um, do you do you like this, Nick? I, I you know obviously again you you covered Ohio State for a little bit. Um, how different from a journalistic perspective is it to cover a program like Ohio State where there's you know a lot of a lot of media attention, a lot of high profile stuff versus covering a team like Bowling Green? where there's not as much media attention, but I know a journalist like you can really, really work it. Um, how would you compare covering two teams that like that? It's super interesting because at Ohio State, I was consistently trying to write things that nobody else was writing just because, like, if whoever, I don't remember, 
who was the who was the linebacker that was injured like the entire 16 year he was questionable urban said he was questionable like the entire anyway uh, you're Dante not coming Booker, to me maybe? typically maybe yeah. yeah maybe it was but you're typically not coming to us at the blade if you're a giant ohio state fan you're probably not coming to us for injury updates but what we can do is write cool stuff that people i think are interested in i remember i wrote a big thing on stadium security uh before the michigan game that year that ended up being the uh, the JT Barrett did he or did me game. Um, assault, like how do you keep assaulted the stadium by safe? a camera? <laughs> no, the the one the year before. Oh, the, the one the year before, right? Oh, the the but the butt ran into his player's butt. Yes, right. One inch. Uh, just how you basically down. how you keep one hundred and ten thousand people safe? How you screen these people in, in the age when everybody has their phone, all that stuff. I was always trying to write stuff like that. At Bowling Green, we're pretty much the paper of record. So the coverage is way different. And a lot of times I go to practice and I'm the only media person there. So I was interested to see how, how this was going to work out. We had a retirement on the staff and I didn't know what to think that you know, I was going back to cover a Mac school. But to be honest with you, I have had the past two years have been some of the most fun of my career. Very cool. Well, you're built for it, Nick. You write great stuff. I encourage everybody to read it. Um, Nick, thanks so much for taking a half an hour out of your quarantine to hang out with us here on Buckeye Talk. And uh, we will keep our fingers crossed and look forward to uh, seeing you in the press box the first week of the college football season. I'm just going to anticipate that it's going to happen and people can tell me um, otherwise. I didn't really want to bring it up on this podcast because I want to operate under the assumption that all systems are go while realizing that probably there's a very, very high likelihood that they're not all systems go and that this game will be delayed or perhaps postponed or who knows what. But, um, you know, we still had fun previewing it, even if it doesn't happen, right? Yeah, no, I mean, at very worst, it let me wait this out, doing something moderately productive while the bread I just baked cools. So I didn't eat it all yet. Which, and that's the thing. That's the thing that I can take to bed tonight. I didn't do that. Very nice. Beat writer, bread maker, Nick Petrovich from the Toledo Blade. Thanks so much for your time, man. Thanks, Doug. All right, we're back after that discussion. Thanks again to Nick. I thought it was really interesting, and I certainly um, appreciate that. Nick on there talked about remembering in 2008 the scare that Ohio University gave Ohio State. I talked about the Toledo game in 2011 that I remembered. I have looked up the recent history and the recent scares of, of MAC teams against Ohio State, but we'll start off with this general idea. Stephen, as a graduate of a MAC school, what do you think of the idea of will a MAC team ever jump up and get Ohio State in this modern era? Not with the way Ohio State's recruiting, no. It would take a lot of things to go wrong, meaning what happened in 2011 times three would have to happen where you're you basically uh, – the grunt of your talent is suspended – you're starting a true freshman quarterback who really has no idea what he's doing. You've got a holdover head coach. And also, you know, guys who you, you had a team full of guys who just didn't develop. And so it opened up the window to where, you know, a Mac school who maybe had a class of transfer guys who didn't work out at the major schools they went to and they transferred to mid-major schools. They were able to take advantage of that and, you know, that that's that Max who also has to be a bowl team on its own right. And I don't necessarily think that because of where Ohio State is, especially on the recruiting trail where 
They're bringing in five and four star guys as if it's a re- like it's a religion. And Ryan Day is developing quarterbacks the way that he's talked plans to develop quarterbacks. And there's NFL talent all over the place. Even the bench warmers are NFL talent. I just don't see that happening. Nathan, d- does it? Is there any part of that that you disagree with? That like what what's the scenario, or is it just like too far fetched to even consider it that a back team would win? I, I was trying to think of the circumstances under which a team, a MAC team, could beat Ohio State, and I was thinking, well, if you had a coach who was um, underrated, like somebody who's kind of a transformational kind of coach, and this is where he's like making his first impression, he's ahead of the game, he's doing something you know people can't see coming, he's you know whatever that kind of element, and then also thinking like, oh, maybe like the Mount Pleasant Michigan happens to have a five-star quarterback. Who, tran- who signs with Clemson or USC or Oregon or somebody and it doesn't work out and then he just comes home and plays for the Chippewas and now they've got just this weird stud that showed up out of nowhere. They shouldn't be playing in the MAC. But, but really, even those scenarios, the balance of talent at Ohio State should always win out. I think Steven's right. I think it would take something, something else. Something would have to have fallen kind of off a cliff. So maybe... Ryan Day leaves and there's a lot of other staff turnover and the next guy doesn't work out. That's harder to project down that line, right? But in, but in terms of just the era that Ohio State football has entered into, what, what Urban Meyer did as far as elevating the national talent level that comes to Ohio State, I don't understand how a, a Mac school um, looking at the recruiting numbers could ever get on a field and really give them a game. In Ohio Stadium, especially because that's where that game's always going to be played. Right. There and was to the game. point of the Go ahead, to Steve. the point of the point of the five star kid who doesn't work out at Clemson and comes home, it couldn't just be one position where that happens. It would need to take, you know, a quarterback. Uh, that's, what I said. that's what I said. A quarterback. Yeah. It would have to be a quarterback. No, no, no. I'm saying it can't just be. I'm saying it can't just be the quarterback. It would need to be two or three positions, vital positions on a football team where that happened, and it just so happened to work out for a Mac school, not just at the quarterback. Maybe, but I think it. It's, I think a quarterback of that talent can elevate the level of play of a lot of the other guys on offense. It it's it is weird um, when you think about like some of Ohio State's losses, like the ones the two that we always talk about. Like Nate Stanley for Iowa had a had a good day when uh, when Iowa beat Ohio State a couple years ago. Um, and by the way, I was owned because Nate Stanley did get drafted like in the sixth or seventh round. So yeah. that, I got it. Yeah. Right. Seventh, seventh round. Hey, who am I to, to besmirch? How could it possibly be that I implied that Tate Martell was better than Nate Stanley when he's a seventh round quarterback? Um, it was a good quarterback on a good day. David Blaw, the Purdue win wasn't, I mean, he's a, he's a third stringer in the NFL, but they did have it. Sometimes it's like if the, if, it, if an average quarterback has a good day and you and we've talked about this before, you have an NFL guy in a couple spots like Rondale Moore went nuts. Josh Jackson, the Iowa cornerback that day went nuts. So I do think we can get a little bit of a Mac blueprint um, from some of these lower level Big Ten teams that have beaten Ohio State because Nathan, I mean, it came up a lot and we'll get to it because we're going to have some texter comments. There was more than a few comments that were like, well, if Purdue could beat them, then a Mac team could beat them. Is that a fair comparison? No. Um, and I know – I know that, to the defense of the mighty <laughs> Boilermakers. I'm not really rising to the defense of the Boilermakers. Here's the thing. I, I've used this kind of analogy before. If you think of it kind of like a bell curve, there's the teams at the very one end that are the elite. Ohio State's in that group. It's a thin group. 
there's teams at the other end that you wonder if they even have heard of football before. That's a pretty thin group. And then there's this big fat middle where pretty much everybody can beat each other on a given day. And Purdue and most of the Mac exist in that big fat middle. Once in a while, when, when, the, when the world syncs up perfectly, the Purdue's of the world can beat Ohio State. Um, but, I mean, it, even, even in that year, the same Purdue team that beat Ohio State on its, at home also lost to Eastern Michigan at home. Um, I just don't ever see – to compare Purdue and a MAC team, the MAC team – let's just take – well, let's just take – Let's take Bowling Green, for example, because I was looking back at their recruiting. Since 2017, so 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020 classes, obviously no five stars are going to Bowling Green. How many four stars has Bowling Green had in that span? 31. 31 four-star recruits in, that, in those four years? What is it, two? Zero. Okay. Wow. They've had zero. <laughs> they, there were three different years where they had 13 three-stars, and in the 2019 class – they had no five stars, no four stars, three three stars, seven three stars, sorry, and finished. They finished last in the MAC in recruiting. So let me let me phrase this: No individual MAC program is as good as Purdue. Do you think in every year? Do you think that the the MAC champion is as good as Purdue most years, or no? Um. Because uh, that's, that's a great question. That's a that's, that's a part fair of your question. Is Ohio yeah, State going to match up with uh, the year they play the best MAC team by happenstance, right? I but I think we're also still talking about balance of talent in the whole in the whole program. I mean, Purdue again is a good example. You're, you're talking about so so David Blau started games in the NFL last year. I know he was a third starter. I know there were injuries, but he's he was in the NFL playing games last year. Rondell Moore is going to be in the NFL playing games. Um, Marcus Bailey just got drafted. I mean, you know, Lorenzo Neal up front. Like, they've got NFL guys on that team. They just don't have as many of them as Ohio State does to make them invulnerable to an upset from a MAC team. But Ohio State always will. Under In this current era, Ohio State always will. So in the last 14 years, again, we said 30 wins by the MAC over the Big Ten in the last 14 years. Here are the numbers on that. There are six wins over Purdue, five over Indiana, four over Illinois, and Eastern Michigan's win over Illinois last year is what kept this streak going. So six, five, four, three each for Northwestern and Iowa. Not a great mark for Iowa. Two each for Rutgers and Minnesota, and then one each for Penn State, Nebraska, Michigan State, Michigan, and Maryland. And again, Ohio State and Wisconsin are the only two teams to have not lost to a MAC team in the last 14 years. There is a unifying thing. Something that was the case for both the Penn State loss to the MAC team in the last 14 years and the Michigan loss. Can you guys guess what was happening at Penn State and Michigan in both the years that they suffered a MAC loss? That was probably right around a coaching change. Let's say, yeah. First year. Yeah. Rich Rod's first huh. year, Bill O'Brien's first year. So that makes sense, right? When we're talking about this confluence of events, Bill O'Brien's coming in after the Joe Paterno end of his career and it, everything's kind of nuts. It's the opener. It's the opener. It's the first yeah. game Bill O'Brien ever coached. Did you, um, say, did you say this is over 30 years? Uh, over the last 14 years, 14 years, there okay. have been 30 wins. I'll just say the same thing happened to Joe Tiller at Purdue. He lost to Toledo and then beat Notre Dame the next week. And it was kind of off to the races, but yeah, that first game that sometimes is the one that, that 
leaves you vulnerable to a game like that. So in 2012, it was Ohio beating Penn State uh, in the opener. And in 2008, uh, Toledo beat Michigan. I think it might have been Rich Rod's second game. So, like, that makes sense, right, Stephen, that that would be one of the things that yeah. on the checklist of things that would you'd have to have in place, a new coach. Yeah. But so, also, like, go ahead. go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I'll make my point. Go ahead. Well, by that standard, Ryan Day passed the test because last year at his first MAC game, Ohio State was losing 5 nothing to Miami, and then they won 76-5. to <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we never we didn't know at the time that Ryan Day's Mac inauguration uh, was such a big deal, but like that is the time for somebody to jump up and get you, and they did not jump up and get Ryan Day. But also, I think that that speaks to the other the greater thing we're talking about here, which is that Ohio State can't really be compared to those other programs right now because of the talent disparity that they still have right now, even over Michigan and I would argue Penn State. So, but also. No, that, that, I mean, that's basically the point that like it's still tough to, to even like think about making that comparison, um, especially like last year is a bit of an outlier. Just all of the talent that Ohio State had and Miami of Ohio being kind of just another team. Um, but even if it was like a, a really good Mac school, the, the disparity right now still just doesn't even really make you even think that that's possible. And also everything was still in place. The, yeah. The, the the most important parts of Ohio State football were still there for Ryan Day from when Urban Meyer left. Uh, Ryan Day was still calling the plays. You know, they they he replaced himself, and Brian Hartline was the wide receiver coach the year before, just like he was officially in 2019. Larry Johnson still existed. The only thing they got rid of were the things they should have gotten rid of, and that were the defensive assistant coaches who were not good at their job. Everything. So it was probably the smoothest of a transition you could have in a coaching change. While with Penn State, that clearly wasn't the case. Yeah, um, you know what? And I got it wrong on uh, Rich Rod. He he actually did not lose his first MAC game. He lost his second MAC game. They beat Miami in Week Two, and they lost to Toledo in in Week Six uh, in Rich Rod's first year. So we all know that, right? That we've talked a lot about that Ryan Day inherited quite a good situation. So again, mm-hmm. Rich Rod gets hired, but Rich Rod Lloyd Carr in his last two years. At Michigan, Lloyd Carr went 11 and 2 and 9 and 4. Okay. He went 11 and 2 and 9 and 4. They hire Rich Rod and he loses to a Mac team and goes 3 and 9 in year one. He, Lloyd Carr had won 20 games total the previous two years. Rich Rod loses his first game to Utah. Beats Miami, loses to Notre Dame, beats Wisconsin, and it, like ranked top ten Wisconsin as a momentary savior, and then loses to Illinois, Toledo, Penn State, Michigan State, and Purdue in a row. Remarkable. Like we give, it's like Ryan Day was set up. Rich Rod. It's not like Rich Rod inherited. He didn't inherit the mess that like Bill O'Brien inherited. He came in for a guy who had been really good and won a national title at one point, and he just drove it right into the ground. Yeah, yeah. Rich Rodriguez spent no time, you know, proving that he was a terrible hire. He spent no time. So that included that Toledo loss was in 2008 was part of that. Again, uh, uh, Penn State had the loss to Ohio. Here, uh, so this is kind of a, I was double checking the history of Ohio State against the MAC, and there's a stat. Our friend, my friend, my good friend Rusty Miller, who I miss, who covered. Uh, he's still around. He's not dead. He's just retired. Um, who covered Ohio State. I'm sure he's not listening to this. If I asked Rusty, Rusty, did you ever listen to our podcast? He would say, it is the last thing on earth that I would do with my time is listen to your Ohio State football podcast in retirement. 
he was very good at keeping stats. He was always very big on, he always mentioned the stat, the last team from Ohio, the last in-state team to beat Ohio State was Oberlin in 1921. So that's part of that when we talk about the MAC. There, it's not just the MAC, but like if, if Central Michigan, Western Michigan, Eastern Michigan, Northern Illinois, if one of those schools beats Ohio State someday, it's going to be a big deal. If Akron, Kent State, Miami, Ohio, Toledo beat Ohio State, it's going to be like the University of Dayton kind of thing. Like when Dayton beat Ohio State in the NCAA tournament, Stephen, wouldn't that be amplified when, if and when it's an in-state team that beats Ohio State in football? It would be the, the the University of Dayton thing times 20 because it's football, and that's what reigns supreme in the state. So we'd see a, a, a similar thing where we'd all be, you know, writing panic stories about what is going on with Ohio State football while every writer of an Akron or a Kent State or Miami of Ohio is talking about, is this the, is this the greatest Akron, Kent State, or Miami, Ohio team of all time? I should have researched this. Did Ohio State just get lucky and not end up playing – uh, Miami when Roethlisberger was there. Oh, I got or... it. I researched okay. it. I okay. It. It's coming. I guess it, I, I, I told this to Nathan before we started. I, but the conversation we had like several months ago about how I like to just pull the podcast out of my butt and Nathan likes to research it. And we had a big discussion about research versus, versus pulling it out of your butt. I spend so much time researching for this podcast now. It is unbelievable, especially since we're doing it five days a week. I have by the way, I, by the way, I don't like, I don't like do, I don't like go to the library. I don't like, I don't like, it wasn't like this big research project. It was simply, um, do you look at the questions <laughs> before you, before you start doing the podcast? It's really all I did. I didn't even, it wasn't like I had a formal script that we were reading. It was just, Hey, do you put the, the questions in some kind of order before you start the podcast? And, and, and those were the glory days when all I did to prepare for the podcast was turn on a microphone and then be like, oh, we have questions. I wonder what they say. I was in the Mac Media Guide for half an hour today. I was looking at Ohio State box scores from the 90s. Like, I am, I, I don't just have, like, what happened. I have, like, what happened on the fourth drive of the third quarter and when John Cooper played a Mac team in 1997. So we got some stuff to get to. Um, but I want to say this. So they didn't always do this, right? And a long time Ohio State fans know this. It's such a normal part of the deal now for Ohio State to play a MAC team. I thought, well, well, we'll draw the line at Woody and start with Earl. Like, okay, well, what's the sort of the modern Ohio State football? Earl never played a MAC team. So like they get, they made fun of Earl Bruce for going nine and three every year. He was playing power five non-conference opponents three times. Earl Bruce's non-conference schedule was always like UCLA, Texas, and Pitt. And it was like, hey, way to go nine and three, Earl. And then Jim Tressel got here and it's like, could we play Youngstown State twice in a season? Would that be allowed? <laughs> so it's like you have to compare eras, and I get it, but it is it is the it is a modern change for maybe this is obvious to some listeners, but Earl didn't play anybody. They started playing Mac teams in the late 90s consistently. John Cooper went five and zero against the Mac. It started off in '92 against Bowling Green. Then they didn't play another Mac team until '97. So John Cooper played MAC teams in 92, 97, 98, 99, and 2000. So he did it his last four years. John Cooper, 5-0 against the MAC in 13 years. Jim Trestle, 12-0 against the MAC in 10 years. More than one MAC team per year. Plus, he did play Youngstown State twice in that period, too. So that is quite a way to pad the resume, to go 12-0 in your 10-year career against the MAC. Luke Fickle. Losing record as Ohio State's head coach. 
Luke Fickle is six and seven as Ohio State's head coach. He's four and seven against the rest of the world and two and zero oh against the MAC. Luke Fickle got to play Akron and Toledo in 2011, and then Urban Meyer six and zero oh against the MAC. Ryan Day one and zero oh against the MAC. So since 1992, that's 26 and zero. Oh, and I am going to go through the close calls and the things like that, but I want to get to some of the text subscriber answers on what it would take from the 614 as ohio state currently stands it'll never happen ohio state would have to hit a major rut for it to ever happen lose to a mac team i mean will rutgers ever beat ohio state maybe that comparison is an insult to the mac i think it is an insult to the mac steven yeah. and nathan what will happen first a mac a, team wins a mac team beats ohio state or rutgers beats ohio state steven you saved the mac very quickly why yeah, Rutgers is just so – it's just – Mac schools are the way they are because of their lack of talent. Like, Rutgers is just – that whole football program is just, you know, a sham of itself. It should, it's just not – it should not be in the Big Ten for a lot of different reasons. And some of it they, – they, they can't even – right now they're, they're unable to even recruit in their own backyard. The rest of the Big Ten kind of, you know, takes advantage of that. I mean, the main difference is that Rutgers is the best team in New Jersey and – no Mac schools are the best team in their own state. So Rutgers yeah. should have a shot at the talent in New Jersey. But I have said on the record, and I wrote a column several years ago, Ohio State will never lose to Rutgers. And I don't think that about the Mac. Nathan, which one do you think will happen first? A Rutgers win over Ohio State or a Mac win over Ohio State? Just a quick correction. As someone from Illinois, I think there have been some years where Northern Illinois was arguably the best school in Illinois, best team in Illinois. They went to the Orange Bowl not that long ago. Um, I think I think Rutgers is a in going forward is a more likely win just because they've made the coaching change. Yeah, things have been terrible there for a while, but they went back and got the guy who oversaw the program when it wasn't a joke, when it was the one that was up there, you know, making noise. I know it was another conference. I think their path to being relevant in the Big Ten is tougher, obviously, than the success they had in the Big East. But I think you you bring back a guy and and putting things in place that could get you back to some semblance of respectability. They could put them in that position where they are a where it's a Purdue situation where you can beat Ohio State at home once in a generation. From the six one four, I think it would need to be a series of unfortunate events. Something traumatic happens to the head coach that week. The starting QB gets seriously injured with no reputable backup. A number of other key injuries or suspensions for other important players, maybe as a result of whatever happened with the head coach. It rivals a fiction novel, and I don't think it would ever happen in today's world. But who am I to say? Well, you're a texter to us, so you can say that. From the 3-3-0, I think Ohio State would have to be on a special type of rebuilding year to ever lose to the MAC, like maybe catastrophic like 2011. Um, from the 6-1-4, the quarterback would have to get knocked out early, and the opposition would need to have a potent offense for a MAC team to beat Ohio State in the present time. This ain't trestle ball anymore. That is an interesting point because there were some times – in the trestle years that I covered where there were Mac teams in Ohio stadium, putting a knot in the guts of the people in the stands. And part of it was because Jim Trestle was trying to score like 28. He wasn't putting Miami down 76 to five. And it's like, well, if this Mac team can find a way to score five touchdowns, they might win. I do think that's an interesting point from the three, three Oh, thank you guys for the daily pods. It gives me something to look forward to every day. As far as a Mac team ever beating Ohio state, I really believe it would take a perfect storm for that to happen, meaning a stud quarterback like Ben Roethlisberger leading a very veteran MAC team that has had previous success, as well as Ohio State having transition 
or sanctions like in 2011 and a quarterback like Joe Bowserman left on the roster after and the roster being in shambles. But even then, I have a hard time seeing it happening. From the 937, I don't want to say never because it's such an absolute term, but I'm struggling to picture a MAC team beating Ohio State without some kind of cosmic shift in the sports landscape. The divide between the haves and the have-nots is just getting bigger and bigger, with Ohio State being one of the super upper tier of the haves. I think college football would have to change on such a fundamental level for Ohio State to lose to a MAC team in the next 20 years. I'm thinking of something along the lines of minor league football taking over or something like that. That's Jared D from the 937. To that point, you guys sort of said that. Does it just feel like it's only going to get harder and harder and harder and that maybe the max best chance is behind it? Do you think that, Stephen? I do think that. The, the minor league football thing is interesting. I mean, it's an extreme version of it. But, yeah, because then something like that where you get a lot of this NFL talent out of the way kind of even into the playing field. So it would take something to that extreme. I, and I think the other factor here still is the difference between when, when people were making the comparison with, with Purdue and a MAC team is Ohio State occasionally has to go play at Purdue. That was a big part of that game as someone who was there. The atmosphere, everything that built that day in West Lafayette, I think that was a, a factor at somewhat in that game. That's just never going to be the case. I mean, it, it, a team like Bowling Green or Miami of Ohio or Akron or Kent State coming into Ohio Stadium and and being able to to get the momentum on their side to pull an upset is just kind of just not really fathomable right now. From the 614, uh, Ohio State has only gotten better as a program. No, I don't think Ohio State will ever be upset by a MAC team. Too many things would have to go wrong. An injured quarterback, a coaching disaster, a recruiting disaster, Bill Davis's return. I don't think all would happen at once, even with one of those things, would not be enough to lose to a MAC school. That's from Evan in Oregon. From the 239, in order for that to happen, Buffalo would have to have Khalil Mack again and a much better offense. So, no, it won't happen. Khalil Mack came up a couple times with people, and I think people do remember that game. Again, we're sort of talking about if you have an outstanding player. Ohio State played Khalil Mack and Buffalo in 2013, and that was notable in that game. It was early in Taylor Decker's career. It was his first year as a starter at left tackle. And it was like, oh, look, Taylor Decker is supposed to be good, and he got undressed by this Buffalo dude. And Taylor Decker was like, dear God, I've never played before. What was that? And it was like, oh, it was Khalil Mack. So that was like, that is the best Mack defensive player that will ever come into Ohio Stadium. Like, you cannot ask for mm-hmm. – that is the most impactful MAC defender that Ohio State will ever face. Ohio State won 40-20 to 20 that day. So even with Khalil Mack against a young tackle who couldn't block him, Ohio State still scored 40, right? So, I mean, like, does that – when you hear that, Nathan, does that even – does that emphasize even more how hard it would be? We're talking about the great player – and the great player probably, you know, he turned it from a 40. Maybe Ohio State would have won 60 to 20 if Khalil Mack wasn't on the field. But even with Khalil Mack on the field, Ohio State still doubled him. Yeah, again, that's it kind of goes back to the discussion that Steve and I were sort of having at the beginning where I, I had insinuated, like, I think that could maybe happen if there was a quarter, if the Khalil Mack of quarterbacks, which I guess yeah. would have been Ben, ben Roethlisberger, um, if that person – could that person come into Ohio Stadium and just things go awry and the game gets sideways and they they pull one out? I, I guess I can get my brain to that. 
I just think it's much tougher if it's any other position. I just don't see any other position being able to change a game that way. And the Max are going to occasionally have those kind of players. Um, there's been some just phenomenal players come out of the Mac in the last few years, but just one of those guys on the field at any other position doesn't flip the balance of talent that exists when those teams go up against Ohio State or or against really even Michigan and Penn State or and obviously even Wisconsin very often. From the 937, if Ohio State's trajectory continues to go the route it has, I do not think a MAC team would ever be able to win, at least for the foreseeable future. There is just way too much of a talent gap, both on the players and on the coaching side. In order for us to lose, I think our whole first-team offense would probably have to be suspended for some mass violation, knock on wood. And even then, our second stringers may be able to carry the day. Stephen, right, we've talked about second stringers here. Even then, the Ohio State second string could probably beat Almost every MAC team, maybe not the MAC champ, but maybe even the MAC champ, right? Ohio State second I, string versus the MAC champ. It would probably be similar to the Khalil Mack game, where it's a forty to twenty win instead of a sixty to ten win, just because it's your second stringers. But yeah, there's NFL talent who are in your second string who sometimes are just blocked because, well, there's a top five pick who's starting over you. From the 8-1-3, I don't think anyone in the MAC will ever beat Ohio State. I think the closest I'll ever get is when Miami of Ohio was up 5 nothing on the Buckeyes for that one quarter. Uh, in order for Ohio State to lose, I think every Buckeye except Justin Fields would have to miss their alarms, and Justin plays all three sides of the ball by himself. Even then, I could see Justin winning it on a last-second field goal that he snapped to himself. Nathan, could Justin Fields beat a MAC team by himself? Like literally by himself? Like one against 11? No. I don't think, I think it's 100% no. How about just – What? It's 100% no. Let's what? Be, how about no, – no, All right. No, we're, not, All right. we're not even going to explore this. How no. about Justin Fields playing both sides of the ball and the 10 other players on his side are all sports writers? 10 no. sports writers on Justin Fields. Yeah, we would get our ass kicked. All right, let's do it. Bring it, Mac. No. no. Get me Justin. And so Tony- I guess – I mean, we you do realize that the majority of the people who cover this beat on a day-to-day basis are over the age of 40, right? And we're not especially athletic to begin with. <laughs> At least in a Division One football kind of way. There's like, yeah, there's like five of us who are of an age. Where like, <laughs> and even All then, right. we're not hanging with them. All right. By the time, if we continue into this and we're still having like regular conference calls with Ryan Day and we're like not having a season, I will ask, Ryan, how many Ohio State players would it take – what would be the balance of Ohio State players versus sports writers on the field at one time that could beat the MAC champ? Would it be like five Buckeyes and six sports writers? No. Seven Buckeyes and four sports writers? Would, it's 11. Make it's 11. Make it, if there's yeah. one of us out there, if I'm out there anywhere on the field, if I'm out no. there anywhere on the field, that no. other team is just going to attack me no. on every play. No. I will say, it's having – we we all rewatched the Purdue and Maryland games from 2018 for the next part of the podcast. Having seen the weak links for Ohio State on that, I think I get your point because Ohio State exactly. did not have a sports writer on the field that day, but they may as well have because they were playing 10 versus 11 for most of that day, and Purdue and Maryland lit up lit up the weak spots. Um, so all that's right, fine. Let's, to fine. go back to the to go back to the original question, let's, <laughs> let's look have at a, a real conversation. <laughs> let's, let's look at a specific example. So let's say let's say Ohio State has you know, phenomenal season this year. Reaching back to the podcast we just had the other day, let's say that pretty. Let's say that like all of the early entry guys leave, and that includes 
Jeremy Ruckert leaves. Josh Myers leaves. Seven Banks leaves. Tommy Josh Togiai. Proctor leaves. Tommy Togiai leaves. Just like all of them. All of them go because they were just so great, and the NFL is is backing up the truck for them. So all those guys leave. You're going to have a first-time starting quarterback. I mean, uh, whether it's um, whether it's the two freshmen right now or Kyle McCord, it's going to be a first-time starter. And in McCord's case, it could be first guy, first time he's playing. Fourth game of next year, Akron comes to Ohio Stadium. I mean, like, so what percentage do we put on that under those circumstances, Akron could beat Ohio State? Because I still think it's probably zero. I don't think it's. I think I'll say that if 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 let's just say you know whoever their max school is, I don't have the schedule right now. But whoever the max school they play in 2021 is a team who also won the max championship. Yeah, it's accurate. Okay. Akron wins the MAC championship, and the majority of that roster comes back. And then we're painting the scenario, just paint it, Nathan. I would give it a 35% chance that Akron's 35? That's a lot wow. of news for Ohio State. And a lot, we already just said it. A MAC school that's, bringing, that's already a MAC champion, and they're bringing back basically that entire squad. So it's a team of veterans and a bunch of guys who your starting quarterback is somebody who has never been a starter in starting college football. And if Kyle McCord wins the game, wins the, the the competition, it's a guy who's never even played college football before. And a lot of guys stepping into new roles because you lost all of your impact players from the season before. Yeah, that's wrong. also it's yeah, it's still that's wrong because you have a not, one in three chance. It's never happened. And <laughs> there's going to be a one. I mean, that's maybe, still way too high. Maybe, I could talk yeah. myself up to like yeah, ten. I mean, yeah, those guys are going to be first-time quarterbacks, but they're also quarterbacks who wouldn't have stopped at Akron to go to the bathroom, let alone go to college there and play for their football team. Well, I mean, it's, you're too, talking about it, just a different level of athlete. And they're not going to – they would just, like, be like, okay, fine, we're just going to run it. You know, like, they wouldn't even make yeah. – you know what I mean? Like, they would just do a game plan that, like, they'd shut it down. Um, from the 706, living down here in the middle of SEC country, people always tease me about Ohio State never playing anyone but Mac schools. I tell them we keep the money in Ohio – as to why they play Mac schools. Do you guys like it? I want to get to that point for this as well. Uh, the future Mac teams on the schedule, it has changed. They don't play two Mac teams anymore because they've gone to the nine conference games instead of eight. So they're only playing three non-conference. And when they're playing three non-conference, they're playing one really good team, one team in the middle, and one lousy team. But there is not room for two Mac teams on the schedule anymore. That is a good thing. Um, although there are two on the schedule this year. Um, the schedule this year is Bowling Green, Buffalo, and Oregon as the, uh, as the non-conference teams. In the future, as we said, Akron in 2021, Toledo in 2022, and then there's a break. They don't have any, any teams on the schedule in 23, 24, or 25. No MAC teams on the schedule at the moment. Ball State in 26. Steven, should Ohio State play a MAC team every year? Should that be a priority? Many times in his career. Jim Trestle, and I think Urban Wright also did, talked about doing that, giving that million-dollar payout to an Ohio program especially, that, that, that there is some benefit that, you know, we get like basically an exhibition game as the Buckeyes, and they get a payout. Is that reason enough to keep doing this, or would it be better if Ohio State never played a MAC team again? From a business standpoint, yeah, it's a great thing. But also, in a world like college football, doesn't have preseason games, and so you're just kind of thrown into it in week one. 
for these teams who are going to be competing for a national championship to have an opportunity to, you know, see how things look before things get real. Yeah, that's a perfect opportunity to do so. You're not necessarily worried about the score. You're worried about how things look and what you need to tweak before you start playing real competition. So, yeah, if you're just playing one, I'm fine with it. Nathan, you're in favor of playing Max schools or no? Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's good. I think there, I think there is something to be said also, and I don't think this is necessarily why Ohio State does it, but I, there's something to be said for it making college football in the state better. This isn't like, you know, where I grew up in Illinois, outside of Illinois and Northwestern and, I guess, northern Illinois, but you've just got a bunch of FCS schools, um, so it always stuns the world when one of them gets drafted in the second round or whatever happened this past week, the kid from southern Illinois. Here you've got, I know it's a next level down, but you've got, you know, Division One FBS programs dotted throughout this state so if i think if those are better the state of football in general in your state is better that's probably a positive thing um although i think it's interesting too right we're talking about how they play two mac teams next year well one of them is like a mac team the way we usually think of in bowling green and the other one is is buffalo's not terrible buffalo is probably one of those schools that you would equate to um a, a purdue or an indiana or somebody like that in the big 10 um i, I was looking at pro football focus uh the, did like a thing of the top 10 players in the Mac for 2020 to see how many of them were from Bowling Green, which was zero by the way, but four of them are from Buffalo on their list. So 40% of the best players, 10 best players in the Mac go to Buffalo. So that's at least an intriguing game. It's, it, it fits more of that, um, of that example of how they get like one great team or a really strong team, one pushover and then a guy in the middle. I think Buffalo is a guy in the middle next year more than they're just a Mac team. And we will get to Buffalo. We're going to do a Buffalo preview in week three. Uh, so we'll get to it later. But they have a coach that people have a lot of respect for. He's been yep. there uh, five years now. Lance Leopold was kind of an yep. offensive genius at a lower level. And Buffalo, the last two years, they were 8-5 and five last year, and they were 10-4 and four the year before. So we'll have a Buffalo beat writer on. So we're Bowling Green this week, Oregon next week, and then Buffalo is week three for Ohio State in 2020. So we will get to that. A couple last comments about the idea of they'll never lose. Um, I like the idea of previewing the season one week at a time. That's from the 443. We appreciate that. The old saying goes, never say never, but I'm, but I'm saying never. So he says, the old saying is never say never, but this texter in the 443 is saying never. Far too many things would have to go right for one of the teams to upset Ohio State, even if they come out slow and turn the ball over three times, the Buckeyes would. The talent would eventually overcome. If this ever does happen, I think the program would have to take a serious, serious look at itself it definitely won't happen under Ryan Day. One more from the 440, there would have to be structural change in the rules of the game and, and the rules of recruiting and scholarships or external financing for a Mac school to pull the upset. Some kind of world where the, the playing field levels even more, that like the financial burden isn't so heavy on Mac schools. They get better facilities so they can recruit better. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, it's going the other way. Yeah, it's, go, it's going the opposite way of that. Um, and do you think would, – would it be enough – if it ever did happen, would it be enough that, like, would Ohio State have to, like, reevaluate itself? Like, would losing to the MAC be such a situation that, like – not that the head coach is going to get fired, but how much – when you think about it, how much would it, like, shake the program to its core, do you think, Nathan? Or would it be like, well, you know what? We lost. We'll get them next time. Circumstances obviously play a role, but I think if it isn't – an example like we were talking about before where it was the first year of someone's coaching tenure, it might be the last year of their coaching tenure. I mean, you have to do, there either have to be extreme extenuating circumstances or you have to have, cause it's not just losing a non-conference game. The Mac is not 
a power five conference. They're outside of that. They're a, they're a step down. They're that step between um, what I was talking about with like Eastern Illinois and Western Illinois and Southern Illinois. I mean, but they're not a power five school and um, to, to have any chance at reaching your championship goals, your ultimate big 10 national championship goals, you have to put yourself at a place where those kinds of programs can't really touch you. And Ohio State's put itself in such a position where that if they're if they're losing to a max school, it's probably not the only loss they're going to have that year. Let's be honest here. Yeah, that's the point too. Again, we're sort we're sort of talking about like, um, you know, when Michigan lost to a max school, then they went three and nine that year. Like well, they, lo- they lost to everybody. Well, not just that. Like, so a couple of years ago, uh, Northwestern went. So 2018, Northwestern went eight and one in the Big Ten, won the West. Got on the field with Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship game, and they're not as good as Ohio State. That game wasn't necessarily close, but it wasn't like they didn't belong on the field. There was there was a football game to be played. That same year, they lost to Akron, who went four and eight. Um, and that's what I was talking about before. Like, there's still this messy middle that most of the Big Ten still belongs in, and Ohio State has just pushed itself out of that. It's not in that conversation really with that that muddy middle. Even even though I know the Iowa and and Purdue losses aren't that distant. Um, to talk to it's it's very different when you're talking about losing at home to a MAC team. Uh, from the five eight five, how could Ohio State lose to a MAC team? Mass expulsions, MRSA outbreak amongst the team. All coaches and grad assistants don't show up for the whole week. The talent gap is so extreme. I cannot see a scenario in the next four years where the Buckeyes would drop a game. If Justin Fields, um, if it's a Justin Fields like quarterback at a MAC school with upperclassmen skill players and one freak tackle, we're all together. Maybe it gets hairy, but the times have changed too much. Here is an interesting, specific example I wanted to get to. From the 513, Toledo easily out-recruits the rest of the MAC on a consistent basis, and they have a solid coach in Jason Candle. Um, Miami is recruiting well by MAC standards, but we know what happened to them last year. As far as the near future goes, I don't see any team having any possible chance other than Toledo. And that's still if and only if they play their best game the program has ever played and Ohio State plays the worst game of the last 10 years. In any other scenario, Ohio State's talent would bail them out. Talking about Toledo and acknowledging Jason Candle as a respected coach, Toledo is the MAC team in 2022. So I think it's like not that we're going to sit here and start targeting like what's the MAC team that could beat Ohio State, except, I mean, I guess that's actually what we are going to do. Um, Uh, that is like something I would look at, right? Like you look at a good program and you try to figure out like, what do they have? What would it take? Jason Candle has been at Toledo for four years. In those four years, he's gone nine and four, 11 and three, seven and six and six and six. Now he inherited what Matt Campbell built. And then Matt Campbell went to Iowa state. Jason Candle has not been Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell was 10 and two his last year. Um, Jason Candle's best two years were his first two years. They haven't been as good the last two years. So he took over. Toledo was at its peak under Matt Campbell. Jason Candle keeps, takes over, keeps it going, and now is starting to fall off. But if he can keep it going, I know they had a really disappointing year last year. I think they were really disappointed to go six and six. I think, I think a coach would be like a huge part of that. Like as you guys talk about, having a star quarterback or having, you know, a a guy here or there on the field. I think the number one thing is that you catch a Mac team with an unbelievable coach who's on the way up because we've seen coaches like that come through the Mac. I think that's the number one thing it would take. 
that's the first thing I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So, along those lines, man, see the research is getting me now. I'm, I'm running out of uh, I'm running out of my sheets. I can't keep track of my sheets. I had a list of um, the people that they have missed. Okay, so like in their history, they have been uh, fortunate to often. I wrote about this a couple of years ago that like they sort of don't run up against the best the Mac has to offer. For instance, you know who would have been a thorn in Ohio State's saddle? Urban Meyer. Yeah. Yeah. Urban Meyer in 2001 at Bowling Green his first year. They beat Missouri in his very first game. They also beat Northwestern that year. In 2002 they beat Missouri and they beat Kansas. So those are like the the power five programs that Urban Meyer played while he was the coach at Bowling Green. But, you know, who knows what he would have done to Ohio State. P.J. Fleck at Western Michigan. P.J. Fleck did play Ohio State in 2015. In his third year, they played Ohio State and lost 38 to 12. They had Corey Davis that year, who's a receiver who would go on to be a top 10 NFL pick. So they had a hot young coach. And they had an NFL receiver, 38 to 12. The next year is the year that Western Michigan goes undefeated. So that was a Western Michigan team on the way up the year they played Ohio State in 2015, but it was not peak PJ Fleck, Western Michigan. That's the next year. I'm not saying Western Michigan would have beaten Ohio State in 2016 had they played, but again, yes, Ohio State had to beat PJ Fleck, but they didn't get peak PJ Fleck. Here's the final stat. This is going back to the thing you guys had mentioned with the quarterback. Ben Roethlisberger was Miami's quarterback, starting quarterback in 2001, 2002, and 2003. Ohio State played Miami in 2000 and in 2005. (laughs) So they missed the Ben window by a year on the front and two years on the back. And who knows what that would have looked like, right? I mean, again, that's – Will you ever have a better Mac quarterback than Ben Roethlisberger? That, Steven, that's the kind of thing. Ben maybe could have done it, right? Yeah. yeah. He's probably the best example of – he probably could have pulled off an upset, like late, late game drive, game-winning drive in the last two minutes of the game type of thing. Now, of course, Ohio State, Ohio State did win the national title in 2002. So maybe Ben Roethlisberger would not have beaten the national <laughs> champion Ohio State Buckeyes. But what are you going to say, Nathan? Uh, just an aside, like Ben Roethlisberger might be the single most impressive – football athlete I've seen on a field in that I was I went to a Bears game one time and was sitting in like the second level and was just astonished by how huge that guy is as a quarterback yeah he's big it's just so and so those kind of talents don't come through the Mac I mean that's like that's not even really generational right I mean it's been he's going to the Hall of Fame he's like that's that doesn't really come through the Mac ever that was the one shot and so for it not to not to sync up fortuitous for Ohio State. And then obviously – but the other bigger part of this is that Ohio State has then since then, after Urban Meyer comes in, it moves just into kind of a different plane of existence, in my opinion. Yes, no, I agree. Uh, but some people think it could happen from the 517. I'm sure at some point in the future a MAC team will beat Ohio State. I don't foresee it for a while, though. A lot would have to happen. I think you'd need a really good MAC team, and you would need a, a bad, inexperienced quarterback for Ohio State combined with the team that isn't ready to play uh, from the three, three Oh Ohio state only has a chance of losing to a max school. If that max school has an NFL level quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger at Miami 
uh, being the best example. From the 513, it wasn't a MAC team so much as a MAC quality team, but the 2009 Navy game definitely comes to mind. Ohio State almost blew a 15-point lead in the last few minutes. Trestle also showed some unusually aggressive play calling by not making it a three-score um, three game by kicking a short field goal and instead turned the ball over on downs. Just like any unbeatable team, Ohio State is capable of having bad days and losing to inferior teams. That game was fun to be at, and I never saw the student body have as much fun partying with the Way fans. That was great. Navy's playing Navy in the service academies is awesome. From the 713, if, Purdue, if Ohio State can lose to Purdue like they did two years ago, they can lose to a good MAC team. Well, I think it's unlikely. It's still possible. Get a great MAC team on their best day and an Earl Bruce type of talented Ohio State team on a bad day, and it will happen. Need we remind ourselves Michigan lost to Appalachian State when they were still Division I AA? Remember, too, that the MAC is a feeder to develop great coaches. Woody, Bo, Urban are great examples. Catch an up-and-coming coach from the MAC. That could also be a scenario where they beat Ohio State. That, again, is from the 713. I think that's a great point. That's the coach thing we talked about. Never say never. It would take a quarterback. That's Seth Shaner. And it would take an Ohio State down year. I mean, that's the thing, too. It has to take a combination of things, as we've kind of said. From the 937, I think it will happen. I think it will happen. Just like a 16 seed upsetting a one seed. The odds are extremely low, but eventually it will happen. Will it happen in my lifetime? I hope not. The first Ohio State game I went to at the shoe was against Toledo during the fickle year. My wife went to Toledo and she was rooting for the Rockets. Toledo had the lead with less than five minutes to go in the third quarter. Ohio State won 27-22. That is by far the most worried I have ever been. Not only would the loss have been embarrassing enough, but to have to hear about it from my wife for the rest of my life would have just been even more annoying. I also went to the Purdue game in 2018, so maybe I should just watch on TV. Steven, is there any basketball comparison here? Like to say 16 versus a one, we finally saw that in the NCAA tournament with UMBC in Virginia a couple of years ago. Like, is that a valid comparison or are basketball and football too different? It's way too different. Basketball is literally based on runs and momentum. And once you, you know, it's a game of runs. You get on a run and you, you ride it out until it's over. And if you have that momentum for a long stretch of period of time, you're probably going to win the game, even if necessarily the talent gap is clearly there. And football – I don't think it necessarily works like there. There can be major swings in momentum, but usually the more times than not, the more talent the team is going to win. Nathan, you've covered basketball. Do you think it's a comparison or no? No, it, it's, 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 it's a different, it, it's just, it's such a different sport in so many ways. Um, and, and part of it is because it's the idea of five on five against 22 against 22. Right. Yeah. And those 22, there's no way for Mac in a Mac in a Mac versus Ohio state or Mac versus big 10 or whoever situation, as we see the NCAA tournament all the time, uh, UMBC versus, uh, Virginia situation. Sometimes you can neutralize one or two guys and that changes the game, but it, you can't neutralize 22 or you can't even really neutralize 11. I just, it, it, it it's, it's, it's not really a, 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 an apples and apples comparison. From the 734, the 2015 season was an absolute nightmare. Huge blemish for Urban. The Michigan State loss was forecasted by playing fourth quarter games against Western Michigan and Northern Illinois. That said, sure, a MAC team will beat Ohio State someday. The formula is not simple, though. It would take a young, hungry coach with a pro or mobile quarterback combined with an Ohio State off day. And multiple people have said this. They said, like, in the post-Ryan Day era. There is a lot yeah. of faith in Ryan Day right now. Nathan, you jumped in on that. Do you think that that, like – Ryan Day's too good of a coach to let this happen? 
I don't know that it's necessarily about Ryan Day being too good of a coach. I'm just, it's more about where this program is right now in terms of its stature. You're, you're going from what Urban Meyer did and the way that he sort of turned things from a talent standpoint and, and the way that they have brought talent in here for the last decade. Now Ryan Day is kind of picking that up and taking it along. You still have the whole um, apparatus around him, uh, Mark Pantone and all those guys that are the, the, the whole the whole well-oiled machine still running that staff that's been here. That's been so integral to that. It's just, it's just in so many ways, even though Ryan Day's putting his own stamp on it and is his own guy, it's a continuation of an era. Right. And I think if, if Ryan Day leaves to go succeed Belichick or, or, or coach whoever at, at some point, and there is some kind of complete overhaul, if, if Ohio state flubs up and hires its rich rod and things go sideways, then that's when things become susceptible, when somebody kind of takes them off the course they're on for whatever reason. Yeah, we've talked about that. Like, you know, again, I've, I reference often the indestructible series we did a couple of years ago before the season because I like it so much. Um, but a lot of people say you're one bad hire away. They just have not made one. You know, like they really they really have not. And it's uh, it's a credit to sort of the structure that's in place here. And I, And I don't know if that means like they've just made – you know, the ADs have made right calls. Andy Geiger could have hired Glenn Mason. He hired Jim Tressel. Um, Urban Meyer was kind of there for the taking, but Gene Smith still had to get it done. Gene Smith could have gone a million different directions after Urban Meyer. Instead, he hires a coordinator who's never been a head coach at any level, and it looks pretty good so far. So um, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's almost to the point of where, like, it's on some level, it's like, yes, I know they're one bad hire away, but I almost have a hard time imagining, like, what the bad hire would look like. Like what is what is the formula for a disastrous Ohio State hire? Do either of you guys like like what it would actually look like? Maybe Man, it's I, a guy who's extremely good at the X's and O's of things, where probably a quality play caller. Yeah, everything that goes into being a coordinator. But if he takes that one extra step ahead, then he's way in over his head. It's like you know. The difference between shooting a mid-range shot and a three-point shot. Maybe you're a great mid-range shooter, but the moment you step behind that line, you know, all of a sudden you can't hit anything to save your life. And that maybe that's what it would maybe take a guy who is really good at the football stuff, but isn't good at the eighty thousand other things that go into being a head coach. I mean, as long as we're we're fawning over Ohio State athletic um, uh, personnel on this podcast, I guess the question to be asked is. Would it take – would this not really be possible while Gene Smith is still here? Would it take him retiring and a, a mistake happening as far as who the athletic director is and then that athletic director hiring the wrong head coach and that kind of being the spiral that happens? Or do you trust – because do you trust that he has a perspective that would not allow someone to come in from a from out of left field and try to take this in a different direction like we've seen happen at some of these I mean it kind of happened at Michigan kind of happened at Nebraska back in the day where you bring in a guy who kind of takes things off of the path and it, some ways they don't ever really recover yeah I mean Gene has not made that many hires frankly right he didn't right. hire Thad Mata mm -hmm. so I mean he he all he had to do all he's done in basketball is Chris Holtman and you know Chris Holtman's done a pretty good job so far um, yeah, Urban Meyer is a no-brainer decision. So. Urban Meyer, I mean, everybody the, – the issue with Urban Meyer is not choosing to do it. Well, I think there's – you could make some argument of, like, 
would an AD want to outsmart himself and hire a guy that if the coach is great, the AD gets credit? Because as we're having the discussion right now, Gene Smith gets no credit for hiring Urban Meyer. So maybe some egomaniac AD would have let that get in the way and been like, well, Urban's too easy. I'm going to go this way. So, But it's not hard to pick Urban. You still have to get it done. Ryan Day is all, all G. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of ADs that would not have hired Ryan Day that would have said, I'm going to get somebody with head coaching experience. So, um, so we'll see. But I do think Gene's done that. I mean, Tom Ryan and wrestling is an example of him making a good hire. I think he's made some good hires at some other places, I um, mean, in some other sports for Ohio State. So, yeah, I mean, I think he's done the part of that job well. But that is the main thing. I think if you get an AD who doesn't understand the culture, it can lead to head coaches who don't understand the culture. And Gene – Although he played at Notre Dame, grew up in Ohio, uh, had been around the block a little bit, around the country at other AD jobs, um, and I think had a pretty good handle on what Ohio State was when he got here, and that led him to hire people that fit Ohio State. Uh, from the 740, it would take the entire team being hung over, or the entire program is off the rails. And what would it take for Ohio State to lose to a MAC team from the 941, a game with several injuries and or suspensions, and a top 20 MAC team with a good quarterback and bad weather? You probably need all of those. Um, all right, so we've heard all the examples of, like, why it's never going to happen, okay? In the 26-0 and 0 that I mentioned, from Cooper to Trestle to Fickle to Meyer today, 26-0, and 0, I went through, and how many of those guys do you think I characterized as close losses, could have been losses on the precipice of a loss made people in the stadium nervous 26 and 0 I have the ones that I called close how many do you think there are Steven two Nathan three six 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 so it's not quite as easy as Maybe we're making it out, except the, the strong point that you guys have been making all along is like, it's, it's only harder now. But looking back, six of the 26, I think, are close. From the 937, I don't think a MAC team will ever beat the Buckeyes unless the Buckeyes were to have half their roster transfer. I can't remember a time that I've actually been worried about a loss coming from a MAC team. But I will say that the start of the Miami game this past season had me stressed before they realized, oh, wait, we're in a football game. We have to play a ha-ha. Lastly, as I previously said, I truly believe the only way a MAC team ever beats the Buckeyes is if half the roster joins a MAC team. I'm going to run through some examples, though, okay? Um, there are some people who had memories about this. Here's one of them. This is from the 804, someone who is talking about the horrible time they had at the Northern Illinois game in 2015. This is hard to imagine that this happened. One of my worst experiences was seeing the Buckeyes in person play Northern Illinois the year after they won the championship. A lot of people are probably nodding their heads along with this. That year, Ohio State is the defending national champion. They opened at Virginia Tech. They had a weird game against Hawaii, week threes against Northern Illinois. They beat Northern Illinois 20-13. to 13. And in this game, this is the beginning of the end of that team that season, they bench Cardale Jones. Cardale Jones gets five series. He throws two picks in the first five series. They bench him for JT Barrett. And like, it's all screwed up after that. 
Northern Illinois leads that game 7-0. They lead it again 10-3. Cardale is benched while they're losing. It's tied 10-10 at the half. In the second half, Ohio State's up 13-10. It takes a Darren Lee pick six to put it away and put them up 20-10. to um, It's raining early on. That's part of uh, uh, Cardale's problem. But yet he's yanked, losing 10-3. Ezekiel Elliott runs 23 times for 108 yards. JT Barrett in relief in that game is 11 of 19 for 97 yards and a pick. Cardale as the starter is four of nine for 30 yards and two interceptions. It is one of the worst examples ever of a great team with unbelievable talent just being unable to do anything that I have ever seen. Um, and it, Cardale lost his confidence after that game. Urban lost his confidence in Cardale. Like, as you guys are – Nathan, as you're hearing this, this is the defending national champions – in the next NFL draft, 10 of the guys who were on the field for this game against Northern Illinois would be drafted in the first three rounds. And they only beat Northern Illinois 20 to 13. What do you think as you're hearing this? It's, it's an example, though, of a Northern Illinois team. Like I said, I think Northern Illinois is – there was there was not that long ago that they were in the Orange Bowl. I mean, it's a, it's a program that is going to be one of the few that could maybe give you trouble. Um, but I think it, it, that also speaks maybe more to some of the underlying problems that were with that 2015 Ohio State team, right, that kept them from maybe fulfilling what their ultimate ceiling could have been. Steven, what do you think of, as you look back on that loss, like does that, does that I mean, there's a lot of things in place there, right? It's, it's not a coaching issue for Ohio State, but there is a quarterback controversy. It was raining. Like the fact that it was that close, are you stunned by that, or is that sort of part of the formula? I mean, you're stunned by it in, in the fact that this is a max school in Ohio State, but to the point where Nathan just said, it's um, it's you look at that and you say there was so much wrong with that team. That team needs a thirty for thirty at this point because when you look at the schedule and you look at you know the scores of a lot of these games, it was almost as if Ohio State was was good enough was just more talented than a lot of teams they play but it, it would just take the right team with the, the decent amount of talent to beat them and obviously that came later in the season but when you know the backstory of this is the team who came out onto the field with Virginia Tech and that's how we found out who the starting quarterback was because Urban Meyer whispered in somebody's ear and from from there the dysfunction started and it allowed teams like Northern Illinois to hang around when they probably shouldn't have been in that game in the first place it probably should have been a 40 to 10 game Northern Illinois went eight and six that year. The two weeks after, they only lost to Ohio State twenty to thirteen. They lost to Boston College seventeen to fourteen, and they lost to Central Michigan twenty nine to nineteen. So that was not like some world beating Northern Illinois team. Um, I was going to try to work it in. Some people have some good memories. I'm just going to have to run through these though um, to relive these a little bit. Okay, so the six in order. First off, is 1992. The the first example in this Bowling Green. Against Ohio State, John Cooper, Ohio State wins 17-6. to um, Bowling Green fakes a field goal in the fourth quarter, uh, down 17-6 to early in the fourth quarter. Bowling Green fakes a field goal. They get a first down at the seven-yard line. And if they score a touchdown, they would make it 17-13. They get stopped on four downs. So they don't – they can't, like, sort of capitalize on that. It was only seven to six at the half. 
So again, a halftime game, Ohio State up seven to six. Um, that was Bowling Green in 92. So that counts uh, as a close call. The next one is 2000, John Cooper against Miami. It's 10-10 at the half. Um, late in the third quarter, Miami is winning 20 to 16. Um, no, Miami's down 20 to 16. They get a 40-yard run down to the two-yard line, and they lose yards on their next three plays, and then they miss a 21-yard field goal. So they are down by four and at the two-yard line in the late in the third quarter, and they come away with no points. And then Miami, Ohio State picks off three passes in the fourth quarter and wins 27 to 16. But again, that's late third quarter, MAC team at the two-yard line with a chance to go ahead. This is the craziest one, and I think Marshall almost doesn't count anymore. Marshall's no longer in the MAC. And Nathan, to your point, we're saying the MAC, but there are kind of not all MAC teams are created equal. When Marshall was in the MAC, Marshall was like a different level kind of thing. That's like Chad Pennington, Byron Leftwich, like. They put some dudes through there. Randy, I almost, Randy, right? I mean, like, that's almost – you're not seeing regular talent like that at most MAC teams right now. No, no. Everybody remembers this. 2004, um, Marshall, Ohio State wins 24-21 when Mike Nugent kicks a 55-yard field goal on the last play of the game. So that's how close that was. If your kicker doesn't kick a 55-yard field goal, you're going to overtime. So that's nuts. The next one's 2008. I remember this one very well. Against Ohio, it's the week before Ohio State's going to go on the road at USC. I mentioned it on the podcast with Nick already. Uh, Ohio State is trailing 7-6 to six at the half. Ohio State is losing to Ohio 14-6 late in the third quarter. The final yardage ends up being Ohio State 272, Ohio 254. So they play them like tooth and nail. Ohio does it with their backup quarterback because their quarterback got knocked out of the game early. Um, Joe, they, they snapped the ball over Todd Beckman's head. Jim Cordell snaps the ball over Todd Beckman's head in the second quarter into the end zone, and uh, Ohio falls on it. That's how Ohio went up 14-6. to six. And then Ohio, late in the game, fumbles a punt to set up a key Ohio State touchdown. So Ohio State ends up winning 26-14, but without a special teams miscue by Ohio. Ohio State might lose that game. Uh, the Akron game um, in 2011 with Luke Fickle, not the Akron game, the Toledo game. The Toledo game with Luke Fickle in 2011, we kind of covered that um, a little bit. Um, I mentioned, I think, with Nick that they threw a pass in the end zone. It wasn't a pass in the end zone, but at the end of the game, Toledo is trailing 27-22 in the final seconds. They have fourth down at the 16-yard line. With a shot, they're 16 yards from the go-ahead touchdown. John Simon gets pressure in the middle, forces an incompletion to end the game. But that was uh, Tim Beckman, who I think is a terrible coach, was the Toledo coach that year. Uh, Joe Bowserman, 16 of 30 for 189 yards. Um, just a, a sloppy, terrible game the whole day that Toledo hung around. And then we had the Northern Illinois game. So those are the six. Stephen, that litany, like, does that surprise you that there are six examples like that of those 26 wins, or is the whole point of this that, sure, teams might get close, but they're never going to get over the top? No, it surprises me because the talent gap is too wide for it. Like, two or three would have made a lot more sense just because things happen. Coaches do stupid things sometimes, or sometimes, like, Mac schools can, you know, 
strung up some luck and get some five-star guys who transfer in. But six seems a little bit high. That seems like a number that would should belong to the basement bottom feeders of the Big Ten where, you know, sure, the talent gap is, is wide, but, you know, every so often they might be able to hang around more than it would a max school. So, Nathan, as I'm describing max schools hanging around with a Luke Fickle team or hanging around with an Urban Meyer team with a quarterback controversy or hanging around with a Jim Trestle team, does that make you raise your eyebrow and say, huh, maybe it could happen? Or does it make you say, well, that would never happen to Ohio State now? As I'm describing that stuff, does that sound like a, like a thousand years ago to you or does it feel very real? I don't know about a thousand years ago, but it does seem removed. It just – Ohio State, with the consistency that it has recruited now, going back to around that time with Urban Meyer – I just – the talent level keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger between schools like the ones that they play. Um, so, and again, I think it's going it would, to it would – it would take a Mac school having kind of like what you were talking about before with – I'd forgotten about Chad Pennington for Marshall. That's a good example. Again, it would take an NFL quarterback, and it would take just the, the right mix of circumstances. But even then, it's just it, – the other factor being that they have to come into Ohio Stadium right now with the kind of talent that Ohio State has and beat Ohio State. Um, I think as long as – I think Ohio State has just put itself right now into a, a plane that is a little bit above that. All right, so that's the history. Um, I don't think it's going to happen either. Um, it, I agree, I think, with everything everybody has said. It would take a confluence of events. The thing that I think is is – I think it would. It's more. It's going to take a great Mac team. I mean, the one thing, guys, is is Stephen. Uh, you're the athlete of the group. The idea of like overlooking a Mac team, of not coming out ready to play, of coming out flat and getting down early, is that always going to be a factor? Does that like keep alive the flicker of hope that every now and then, once out of a hundred times, a great team just doesn't take another team seriously and sets itself up for a fall? Or again? Like, even that wouldn't be enough. No, it's not enough to win the game. No, it's not. What what it's enough to do is to go up five to nothing like Miami of Ohio did before Ohio State brings itself together and goes, yo, what what are we doing here? Let's let's lock in. Let's, you know, let's go out there and handle our business. And I think that's what it will do the most is, you you know, you'll probably flip the light switch on for a team who maybe comes in thinking they can just walk through this and get a W. And, you know, at some point in the game, that more talented team is going to have a conversation and then show why they're the more talented team. So it takes more than being flat. Yeah, I, I think I think that's true. Just a, a memory from the 419 from Toledo, a.k.a. the Glass City. This is easy to remember in 2011. We nearly lost to the Toledo Rockets when the great Eric Page absolutely went off. 12 catches for 145 yards. I remember him being uh, electric, playing quarterback at Springfield High School, not to mention, as I've, as I've alluded to before, we nearly lost to Northern Illinois in 2015. So I think it can happen, this person from the 419 says. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I think it is more likely for a MAC team to beat them than for Rutgers to beat them because I think the best MAC team, if you happen to catch the best MAC team, often will be better than Rutgers. Um, but I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. But but it's like it is one of those things. I was even surprised a little bit myself. The history again: 92, 1992, Bowling Green 17 to six, Ohio State wins. 2000, they beat Miami 27-16. 2004, they beat Marshall 24-21. 2008, they beat Ohio 26-14. 2011, they beat Toledo 27-22. 2015, they beat Northern Illinois 20 to 13. 
Those are close calls. I do agree that it's going to get only harder for the Mac from here on out. And what we definitely agree on is it's not going to happen with Bowling Green in the opener in 2020. So that's our preview, our Mac-heavy talk. We won't get this heavy into the Mac when we do Buffalo in two weeks. But we wanted to put some perspective on this. And now we want to go down memory lane. We will be right back on Buckeye Talk with Stephen and Nathan and me giving our thoughts of now that we know how many Ohio State players have been drafted off that 2018 defense, how could it be allowed to happen? What happened that year with the Buckeyes putting probably their worst defensive team on the field that they've put out there in decades? We'll be right back on Buckeye Talk. All right, back on Buckeye Talk. Nathan, Stephen, we all watched the Purdue game and the Maryland game for 2018. And the reason we did that is this. Um, We have the NFL draft now, and we have all the guys off those teams. Not everybody has been drafted yet, but we have a lot more that have been drafted. And here is the result. The starters for Ohio State's defense in 2018 included three first-round picks, Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, Damon Arnett, Three second, uh, three third round picks, no second round picks. So three first rounders, three third rounders, Draymond Jones last year, Davon Hamilton, Malik Harrison this year, a fourth rounder, Kendall Sheffield last year, and a sixth rounder, Jordan Fuller this year. So that is nine, no, that's eight drafted guys, plus Sean Wade's going to be a draft pick next year. That'll be nine. And then you have Jonathan Cooper, um, Tough Borland, Pete Warner, guys still on this roster, Baron Browning. There's five guys who were important parts of the 18 defense who were still around. They maybe could be drafted, but we know eight draft picks at the very least. Nine with Sean Wade for sure. Nine draft picks at the very least among the 13 or 14 most important Ohio State defenders that year. Nathan, as you watch these, these Purdue and Maryland games, as an Ohio State beat writer, what was the gist you got of how that much talent could equal that bad of a defense two years ago? The, well, <coughs> I, the, the guys who stood out to me in a bad way a lot of times weren't the upper echelon guys. You know what I mean? Like there were still enough guys who at that stage of their career were not um, upper echelon guys that they were susceptible to making some bad plays. Um and some of those guys are not with the program anymore. Some of them weren't even just with the say program. It. Just say Isaiah Pryor. Just say Isaiah Pryor. If his dad listens, so be it. He landed at Notre Dame. He's fine. Just say Isaiah Pryor. That's that's one example. But I also, I mean, there were some guys who got drafted last week who probably weren't that excited about teams maybe seeing the film from those games either. I don't think I don't think Jordan Fuller looked great at times, especially against uh, Purdue. I don't think Malik Harrison looked good at times, especially against uh, Purdue. Um, a handful of guys that are actually pretty good football players just did not play very well that day. Steven, re-watching it, you were not on the beat yet for the Purdue game. You uh, were for the Maryland game. What was your takeaway having looked at these games fresh? I think for starters – and a lot of the players alluded to it later on in, in the spring when that, that coaching staff wasn't there. There was a lot – you could see a lot of those guys thinking way too much instead of just making plays. Um, but then also, the slot receivers were just not good in that game. They just weren't. And, I, and some of the, whether it was a strong safety or it was Sean Wade as a slot corner, 
they just were not good in that game. And that's where it boils down to. And that's where they were hurt the most in that game was in that slot position where they, they did not have a good outing. That's what it boils down to. All right. So I have a couple key points that I'll, that I'll bring up and you guys can react to them. Um, one of them is this. We had a lot of conversation a couple weeks ago, people asking about will Kerry Combs bring back a two safety look? Uh, Ryan Day changed things to a one, to a single high safety look last season. Uh, a lot of people seem to believe they will work back toward a two safety look under Kerry Combs this year. If you watch the Maryland and Purdue games from 2018 on film, you will never put two safeties on the field at the same time ever again. They were playing 10 on 11. And it's not just that the second safety, it was Isaiah Pryor against Purdue and Brendan White against Maryland. It's not just that they didn't play well. They're useless. They're 25 yards from the line of scrimmage while slot receivers are running eight-yard routes over a wide-open middle. They're 25 yards from the line of scrimmage and running full force at running backs who then make one move and leave them flailing. I never want to see a second safety on the field again. I have to imagine that is part of what Ryan Day's decision was. It against teams, because those teams did not throw deep. Now, Maryland hit like one 50-yard play down the field, but both Purdue and Maryland moved the ball, running it, and throwing short, quick stuff. And in both those kind of plays, having two deep safeties is useless. And not only is it useless, it's a negative. I cannot believe how awful and useless those safeties look. Nathan, do you agree? I wholeheartedly agree. And there was even one play where um, – where Pryor wasn't, I'm trying to remember which game it was. I think it was the Purdue game. It was the touchdown right before halftime, I think, where um, Pryor was lined up over the slot. But they, uh, Purdue ran kind of some kind of little pick play, and Moore just got free and, and had all day to run. I mean, it was, it was a, he could walk it in. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't get to watch, like, every single play of both those games. I did. I was obviously at the Purdue game covering it from the other perspective. I didn't see every play of the Maryland game. I just got to watch the quick recaps. So I was basically seeing like the scoring plays or the, the most impactful plays. But um, in both of those games, just, just plays, I kind of agree with what Steven was saying, where guys maybe, it seemed like they, you know, what you saw last year where guys were, um, it wasn't even reactive. It was like proactive. It was, it was, there was something innate about the way that they were flowing around the field and getting to a ball that wasn't happening in those games. It was guys on their heels, guys who were like caught in between a step and then, someone like Anthony McFarland is just too fast for that. Once he hits the gap, he's gone. And now you're, you're in trouble. Um, same with Rondo Moore, obviously um, that those kinds of things were happening just repeatedly in those games. Steven, do you agree with that? Or do you think there's still a, a place for two safety looks for Ohio state? No, I don't. I think it, it needs to be three cornerbacks. And I think when Ryan day mandated that this was going to be his scheme, if there was anybody in the room that went why, he literally brought in the film from these two games and said, this is why. Now let's go, let's go to practice. So what happens is when they have the two safeties on the field, what either happens when you're playing a team that uses a slot receiver, either you end up with one of the safeties covering a slot receiver, which is not ideal, or you end up with three corners on the field, but only two linebackers. And then that leaves the middle of the field wide open for stuff, especially against the run game. 
And that downhill safety, they, they, their safeties were out of control coming downhill. They did not break down. They did not have good tackling form. They were useless. And, and then the idea of there were a couple plays. That, Sean Wade was on Rondale Moore for, for chunks of the Purdue game. But there's a play. There's a play early on. I think the first play of the game is like a 20-yard completion, completion to Rondale Moore. He runs like an eight-yard route. The safety is over him 20 yards deep. And they're just allowing these slot, these slot guys. You have to – the idea of, yes, we must have a, a cornerback locked in man coverage on that notes, slot receiver a lot of the time. Sorry, one of the notes I wrote down, and it was after um, – um, it was after that play, after the, the touchdown play that made it 14-3. to The very next note I wrote here was, more matched up on Harrison, WTF, question mark. Yeah. So there was some yeah. play where Malik Harrison is trying to cover Rondell Moore. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this those games were, in, in I think, in the long run. You could We're going to probably be writing stories in five years about how Ohio State's whatever Ohio State's doing defensively at that point, a lot of it traces back to deficiencies that showed up that season. And, and Purdue and Maryland killed the strong safety? Well, it, I mean, it really is because it's not even – I mean, there's a lot I think you can fault with Greg Schiano with some of, like, the way he the, the, he played guys, but that's like a structural decision. We're playing we're playing a two-deep safety look. Like, that's like a – that's their base defense. And it just – it's useless in the Big Ten where nobody can throw down the field because that second safety – if he's coming up for run support, you'd rather have a third linebacker. And if he's locked in coverage one-on-one with a slot receiver, yeah. you'd rather have a third corner. So why is the second safety on the field? Well, maybe if you get hit over the top, nobody in the Big Ten throws over the top. There was In those two games combined, there was one downfield play. That was it. Now, Trevor Lawrence, again, we talked about it before the Fiesta Bowl last year, maybe against Trevor Lawrence. But there's a the wrinkle. Can, Maybe you have a reason to have in second safety, but I think there's that you could say that that Josh Proctor was also at times that second safety was not very involved in things, right? But at least you would have reason to fear Trevor Lawrence. You had no reason to fear the Purdue or Maryland quarterbacks really hitting you deep, and the result was you're playing ten on eleven while they dink and dunk you, not dink and dunk, but they run the ball on you and they throw short crossing routes, and it like that was the thing that jumped out to me the most, the idea of, like, the structure of that defense was such – and that's different than talent, and that's different than, like, Greg Schiano called a bad game. Just two, a double high safety look doesn't make sense. Another thing I thought stood out was nobody got pressure other than Chase Young. And I don't have plays written down. I, all of a sudden, I am, like, re – not freaking myself out, but I am, like – I've said that before about how do you replace Chase Young. I'm not exactly sure. Jonathan Cooper is not disrupting quarterbacks. That was 2018 Davon Hamilton, not 2019 Davon Hamilton. He's not disrupting quarterbacks. The only person who got a pass rush without running a stunt or a twist, without the only person on that defensive line in either game who beat his guy was Chase Young. And Chase got doubled a lot. I thought to me it was a great reminder of if you have a, a defensive end who's the best defensive player in the country, and Chase 18 Chase wasn't quite 19 Chase, but there was enough of it there. They doubled him. They chipped him. They ran away from him. They screened him. They tried to take him out of the game, and it is a reminder of not everybody on that defensive line is Chase Young, and I thought that stood out in both games. Steven, was that anything for you? It is because – 
I think we, I think you said this on Nick Bosa went down and exposed a lot of stuff for this Ohio State defense that probably wouldn't have been exposed if on one side you have Chase Young and the other side you have Nick Bosa. And to that point, maybe we do need to freak out a little bit more about what's going to happen with the defensive line this year because, well, there's nobody who in 2018 who was Chase Young and Chase Young wasn't the best version of himself. Well, Chase Young's not here anymore. And last year, you know, there was nobody who, who was even anywhere near his stratosphere. So I think what that does is, you know, maybe we need to freak out a little bit more about the defensive line than we have. Nathan, did you think there was a lack of pressure from non-young guys? Yeah, I thought I thought that was noticeable. Um, I also did think that, especially in both cases, you had quarterbacks who used their feet to to escape some pressure and make some things happen. But um, certainly nothing like what you saw last year from Ohio State, where you know Young's bringing pressure from one side, and even if you're trying to equate for that, somebody else can maybe grab you on the back end. So I think we know that, but again, it's sort of the, re- the reminder of in 13, 14, and 15, they had Joey Bosa. In 16, they had four NFL defensive ends. So none of them on their own were as good as, you know, Nick was a freshman. So none of them were an All-American defensive end. But the combination of Tyquan Lewis, Jalen Holmes, Sam Hubbard, and Nick Bosa was really good. In 17, you have Nick Bosa. In 18, you did not have that defensive end once Nick Bosa went down at that level. And then in 19, Chase brought it back. You did have that level. The one year, the only year since 2013 that they did not have unbelievable, awesome, consistent pressure from a defensive end, their defense sucked. So, yes, we've talked about Zach Harrison and Tyreek Smith and guys like that on this podcast a lot. They don't they don't just have to be good because their two options are for one of those guys to be as good as Chase Young or one of the Bosa's, or the other option is for the group of them to be as good as Nick Bosa, Tyquan Lewis, Sam Hubbard, Jalen Holmes. Otherwise there's going to be a drop off. And so I thought that was a reminder from these two games. Another thing that's related to that is Chase Young and Jeff Okuda are awesome. It didn't matter. They double-teamed Chase. They did not throw at Jeff Okuda, and it is a reminder of it's – and I always say I want the All-Americans. It's great to have two All-Americans. If you don't have – if the other nine guys aren't really good, a good offense will find holes. I thought that stood out, Nathan, that, again, we're two years away from those two guys being the second and third picks in the draft, and they did not have the opportunity to change those games. Okuda was someone who I did see – stand out to me in some ways, but only in that it it, it was weird. It looked to me like um, I remember watching my, I didn't play football when I was a kid, but I watched my, my younger brother play football as a young guy. And you'd have the one guy who was like, who got old fastest or like who like matured physically athletically fastest. And he would be kind of like the man among boys out on the field and everybody in the league knew who he was. That's what Jeff Okuda seemed to me like at times in that game. And, and a, a, a friend of mine who is a, a Lions fan had asked me something on Facebook or said something on Facebook about, um, I wasn't sure about that Okuda pick. So I went back cause he's also a Purdue guy. went to Purdue. Like I went, I went back and, and looked and see if he was one of the guys that got burned by more in the Purdue game. And he wasn't, he was a guy who actually tackled him a couple times, even though he wasn't covering him. And I saw that happening a lot in those games. It seemed like Jeff Okuda was cleaning up a lot of slop or in position to possibly clean up a lot of slop in those games. 
Um, and maybe even teams were already kind of factoring him in as like not the kind of the part of the field that they were attacking. So, um, that, so yeah, I thought, but in, in general, again, I watched in a more truncated way, but in general, you didn't see a lot of either of those guys. I saw there were a couple times where Young got some sacks and got some pressure, but for the most part, um, yeah, nothing for both those guys. And, and that's, again, if, if you, if you don't have, the, the fewer those guys you have on the field, the more susceptible you are to some of the problems. So they did go after Kendall Sheffield a couple times. And again, Kendall Sheffield is a fourth round pick after that season. But I would say in 18, they did not have a cornerback who was playing like a first round pick in 2018. Now, they might have two starting quarterbacks who will end up being first round picks. But Sean Wade certainly wasn't playing like a first round Quarter, quarterback in 2018 and I don't think Okuda was all the way there yet and Sheffield's a fourth rounder I thought one of the things that stood out and and and, and, and Damon Arnett to his credit a Damon Arnett's hurt for the Purdue game Okuda and Sheffield play basically every snap Wade's the slot corner he's probably in for two-thirds of the snap thanks to the 11 Warriors snap counts Arnett doesn't play Arnett does play in the Maryland game and loses leverage like I've never seen a corner lose contain yeah. on the edge. The yeah. two Anthony McFarland ones is all Damon yeah. Arnett not yeah. doing his job. So, again, Damon Arnett in 2018 is not playing like a first-round corner. No way would he have been. Again, a reminder to me, if you don't have a cornerback in that year playing like a first-round corner, man, you kind of noticed that. So oh, it's I, not about how good Seven Banks and Cam Brown are going to be down the road. It's who's playing like a first-round corner right now, which is why Sean Wade is going to be so valuable in 2020. But I thought that stood out across the board with the corners in 2018. Stephen, what were you going to say? Yeah, I, I, just going back to that McFarlane one, that first run, I like was taking some notes on some things that went wrong pre, or maybe wrong pre-snap and then what happened when the actual play like snapped off. And to your point, Arnett, he follows the wide receiver in motion, but then he goes over so far that he's nowhere near keeping contained. And all of a sudden, you know, Maryland runs a play to his side. McFarland goes for 81 yards because there's nobody there at the line of scrimmage to keep him contained. I don't – there was a lot of undisciplined moments by Damon Arnett in that game. And that – it starts literally the first play of the game, first offensive snap of the game. It looked like he was even – signaling to somebody there there was some kind of miscommunication too i think that played into yeah. that but it may have been his fault primarily but doug to the point you were bringing up i i had that in my notes too that the the stark contrast like i've never covered an ohio state team that didn't start probably a first round nfl player at cornerback and i've only covered one but it was three different positions they probably have first rounders at all three of those guys and i looking back from there to 2018 i see what the difference is between a first round corner and a fourth round corner um a couple of times there were some guys who made some pretty pretty great plays like this isaac zico catch one-handed thing that he made over um kendall sheffield for i think the first touchdown of that purdue game or, or one of the first ones but um yeah definitely a gap and and it showed and so that's part of it, too. I mean, I think sometimes when we look back on players' careers, we see what they were at the end, and then we sort of extrapolate that they always were that. I, I agreed with you, Nathan. I thought Malik Harrison was not very good in some instances. Sometimes he was being asked to do things he shouldn't have been asked to do. Right. But other times he just, he just didn't make a very good play. Um, so, you know, in the end, we look back, and I think this was uh, – someone tweeted – I don't know if – no, someone did text this to me. The texter knows that they get credit for this because they texted me a tweet. And when I clicked on it, the tweet was someone else on Twitter saying, how did Greg Schiano 
have such a terrible defense with all these guys in 2018. So thank you to the texter. That's why we're doing this. But part of the answer is, you know, 2019 Malik Harrison, who was drafted in the third round, that wasn't the guy who played every snap in 2018, right? And I think that applies to a lot of guys. I didn't think Davon Hamilton was all that good in 2018, and he had a killer monster mm-hmm. roughing the pen- punter penalty. Yeah. Kept the drive alive. That's third round. In 2019, that's fifth-year veteran third-round pick, Davon Hamilton. In 2018, he was just a guy in the middle of the defensive line that made a horrible brain-dead play. Steven? No, on cartwheels. I don't even know how he ended up in that position. <laughs> it was it was a unique penalty to get. Like, I rewinded it a couple of times to figure out, how did you end up with your feet in the air? Yeah, and Draymond Jones, who was a third-round pick immediately after that season and who did play very well through most of 2018, I think Dray- once Nick Bosa goes out, I think Draymond Jones overall is the best defensive player on the 2018 defense. Terrible roughing the passer call that keeps the drive alive on a third down. Um, so you had some of your big guys making really boneheaded mistakes. But, again, some of this contain on, on the, the contain when Arnett lost it, that's Brendan White on that side too. Um, the linebackers were out of position. We've talked about that a lot, that Greg Schiano had him in weird spots. But in the end, I think there's a structural problem with the two safeties. I think Schiano, the way he was deploying the linebackers was nuts. Um, but I think it's a reminder of to say, you know, third overall pick Jeff Okuda, you know, fourth rounder. They, didn't, they weren't all playing that way in those games in 2018. And it's, this is not just an exercise to, like, retorture our listeners and make them realize all this stuff. I think it's a reminder going forward of it is so different when you don't just have – so there's two things. Yes, you need the Chase Youngs and the Jeff Okudas, and when you have a defensive end and a corner at that level, it changes everything for everybody else. And when you don't have that, you notice it. And the other part of it is, which is like the opposite side of that is, you might have nine really good guys. If you have two holes, Jeff Brom and Matt Canada and good offensive coaches are going to find them. So the second safety spot in 2018 was a big hole. Sometimes a a linebacker spot was a hole. I didn't think the the second defensive tackle that wasn't Draymond was a hole at times. I thought that showed up too, Nathan, that it's a reminder of both. You need to have the All-Americans, but you also need to be pretty good one through 11 because we saw what happened when they had a hole. Well, yeah, I mean, again, some of the notes I was making as I watched that game was, bad thing happens here, Isaiah Pryor. Bad thing happens here, Brendan White, right? Like, I mean, there were some guys that now when you look at it in that context, and I know you guys saw them more, and it's not fair for me to maybe make this – over just two games, but you, you, you couldn't, I don't know that you could last year, as we were talking about this, we were saying, you can't really make an argument that those guys belong on the field more than the guys that they have out there who were executing. And I think that was just sort of a predecessor to that. I think you saw where some of the separation started to happen between the guys who are going to be frontline pro guy guys getting picked in the first round of the NFL draft and the guys who were just the support guys who then got, bumped aside by guys who needed to be in more primary roles. So as we spin this forward, I want to make two points and then we'll get out of here and I'll, I'll direct one to each of you guys. As we spin it forward, the lessons here about, you know, the reminder of the holes that a hole or two can really hurt you. Where could there be holes in the 2020 defense? I think the linebackers are veteran enough. 
Um, I don't think they're going to have a hole at linebacker. That you know, Baron Browning's moving outside, but between Baron Browning, Tuff Borland, Pete Warner, and the 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 raft of those juniors behind him, I think they'll be fine at linebacker. I think in the secondary, Stephen, and I'll aim this at you. We're confident about Sean Wade, but I think it's a reminder. It's like we're making assumptions, and there's talent there with Josh Proctor, Cam Brown, and Seven Banks as the three other starters in the secondary. If all three of them aren't pretty good, good offenses will find the weakness. So I think they're not going to go 0 for 3 on Josh Proctor at safety and Seven Banks and Cam Brown as the other two corners opposite Sean Wade. So they won't go 0 for 3, but if they don't go 3 for 3 on all those guys being ready, I think we'll notice it. What do you think about the idea of maybe having a hole in the secondary? Especially in the slot. If Cam Brown's going to be a slot corner like we all think he's going to be especially after that first practice the, the slot is is a, a, a priority of reasons of why we're talking about this Maryland game as Purdue game they were killed in those two spots if Cam Brown isn't I'm not saying he has to be Sean Wade level of being a slot cornerback the way he was in 2019 but if he's not at least a really a really good slot corner next year, Ohio State may be in trouble, especially when we get to an Oregon game. I think that's right. And now I think the other part, spot is a defensive line, and we've talked about I think the tackles could even be better. I think there's a lot of faith in the tackles, and there's multiple options there. But defensive end, Nathan, to hammer home the point, I don't think they're going to have a Chase Young or a Bosa, and that's not a criticism of Tyreek Smith or Zach Harrison. It's just the bar is that high. So then what I think they need is like three, four, five really good guys that A – you have two pass rush threats on the field at all times. You don't have any guy. You can't have a defensive end who every time can be blocked one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe he doesn't have to win the battle every time, but he has to be a threat to win a one-on-one -on -one battle every time. And they have to have guys so they can stay fresh. Part of the reason that Jalen Holmes, Sam Hubbard, Nick Post, and Tyquan Lewis were so good in 2016 is that they, they all played half the snaps because they constantly rotated. When you have a guy like Chase Young, you play him more, but he can handle it. Those are the only two options. One of those two things has to be true, Nathan, with the defensive ends, that either one rises to All-American level or all of them are good enough to rotate and be threats on the field, or I think they're going to have a problem rushing the passer in 2020. Did you take that away when you spin what you watched in 2018 forward to 2020? Well, I had kind of, I mean, I brought that up on the pod before that I thought the defensive line could be an issue. And I think I had talked myself more into what you're saying that, okay, maybe actually they could be pretty good at tackle. Um, those guys have some potential that maybe has just got, gotten um, unrealized because they were behind some third, some fifth year guys last year. But I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think all of those are plausible maybe equally plausible right now, right? I mean, Zach Harrison could be an All-American. Zach Harrison could be that great. He he, he had this, the, the prospect pedigree to be that great. Um, and now given the opportunity to just get unleashed, maybe he's that great. Or maybe they've got six guys and they're just rotating a new guy every snap. And there's always a fresh, you know, really solid Big Ten defensive end coming at you. And that becomes, you know, greater than some of its parts kind of situation. Or maybe it's a significant problem. Maybe they don't create pressure and it's not creating pressure that exposes those, that secondary even more. And I, I agree with you. It's, it's even if they only hit on two of those three, if there's a big gap in the third one, and if Sean Wade is not as great as an outside corner as he was in the slot last year. So maybe that's not an Akuta level um, shutdown happening at that other spot that does create problems. They are going to have to bring that 
um, pass rush from somewhere. Baron Browning will help a little bit, but yeah, the defensive line has to come through. And, and again, the, we're only comparing Ohio State to itself. We're talking about right. what it takes to win a national title. We're talking about what it takes to avoid the slip up that knocks you out of playoff contention. The, the, the defense that everybody complained about in 2018 was the defense for the one loss Big Ten champs who finished number three in the country, right? But we're talking about it because we're talking about two games that were a loss and a near loss, and it cost him. It cost him in the end. So the threshold's really high. This is not what's going to make Ohio State go eight and four. It's going to be how good you have to be across the board to win a national title. And so I, I think on the defensive line, I think, Nathan, I might divide it up. There's a 25% chance that they have an All-American and they're super deep, that both things come true. Maybe there's a 25% chance they have an All-American at defensive end, but they're not super deep. Maybe there's a 25% chance that there's no All-American, but they are super deep on the 2016 model. And maybe there's a 25% chance that neither happens. No All-American, not super deep. And then that's when they're not generating enough of a pass rush at defensive end. And that's when you might start seeing a defense be in trouble. Because both you guys, right? The best thing about Chase and Okuda was the way they worked together. Steven, I asked you about the secondary. Nathan, I asked you about the defensive ends. But the secondary gets better when there's a pass rush. The pass mm-hmm. rush looks better when there's good coverage. It's all connected, right, Stephen? And it just takes one thing to fall apart. Yeah, and that's correct. Like my part, Chase Young was great, but also Jeff Okuda's ability to make the quarterback have to hold on to the ball just that longer because he would jam up a receiver at the line of scrimmage, you know, gives Chase Young a, a extra chance to get the ball. But Chase Young also being able to rush the quarterback, you know, maybe he's getting rid of the ball quicker than he wants to, and Jeff Okuda gets a pick. So in the end, Nathan, and we'll we'll let you answer the last thing on here because again, you covered this from an Ohio from a Purdue perspective in 2018, but you're not thinking about the Ohio State defensive coordinator in that situation. The the the, the question about this was how did Greg Schiano? Greg Schiano gets a lot of blame. You can blame a lot of the defensive coaches. You can also blame Tabor Johnson and Alex Grinch and Bill Davis, not Larry Johnson. But all the the four defensive coaches who were not back in 2019 all hold blame for what went wrong on the defense in 2019. But after you watch this, Nathan, did does it make you think, my God, how could that defensive coordinator be so dumb and call such a terrible game when he had this talent? Or in the end, was there some of that, but also some of, you know what, the players were responsible, at least to some degree, for what went wrong as well? Oh, no, there's definitely blame to be placed on just the way some of the individual players executed in that game. we got to remember that it – uh, who a guy is in 2019 is not necessarily who the guy was in 2018. Um, you know, Hamilton's a great example. I think Harrison's a good example. Um, Arnett's certainly an example. I mean, these were guys who were still progressing in their careers. Um, in some cases had not yet, uh, in the case of Arnett, you could say, maybe hadn't worked yet with an important coach that helped bring about some, some better play in him and Fuller too, not having, you know, gotten the influence of, of uh, Jeff Halfley yet. So, I, I, I tend to say, yeah, I'm sure there was some coaching stuff happening beyond behind the scenes too um, that I couldn't have seen covering the other team just for that one week. But at the, as you were watching that game unfold as the opposing beat writer at the time or opposing person helping cover the beat at the time, you, you definitely felt like everything you'd heard kind of far away from about how Ohio State was susceptible defensively was just kind of coming true before your eyes. And that was just the one night where it just kind of hit like a meteor. One thing in conclusion that I thought was interesting, the Browns and Andrew Barry talked about this uh, a lot in the draft, that 
they drafted Grant, Del, uh, Grant Delpit in the second round, the LSU safety, who had a great 2018 and did not have a very good 2019. Um, he was battling some injuries, but he just he didn't play as well. And Andrew Barry was saying, well, we look at two years of film. We don't just want to look at one year. We want to look at the last two years of what the guy did to get a complete picture. With a guy, a guy like Grant Delpit, it would maybe tell you, well, listen, this guy's 2018 film is first rounder. His 2019 film is third rounder. So we took him in the second round, right? If you're looking at two years of film on guys like Damon Arnett and Davon Hamilton, Damon Arnett, and again, they missed him in the Purdue game. He's not a first-round pick in that Maryland game. Davon Hamilton's not a third-round pick the way he played those two games. I'm curious about how those guys do because they both had really good fifth-year senior seasons when they're older than everybody they're playing, they're more experienced than everybody they're playing, they're surrounded by talent, and they are absolutely set up, Davon Hamilton and Damon Arnett, to play at their peak in 2019. But that is not who they were their whole careers. So if you draft Damon Arnett with the 19th pick, off peak Arnett, he's not going to be older than anybody now than everybody now. He's not going to be more experienced than everybody now. He's not going to have that edge. The talent's going to be equal. I don't know, man. Like that idea of what this watch two years, there's a couple guys for this Ohio State team drafted in 2019. If you also enter their 2018 film into the equation, I don't think you draft them where they got drafted. All right. We hope you learned a little bit about the 2020 defense and what we think about it. Just, again, high bar, high bar. But we want to be honest and realistic about this team. We want you guys to text us, 614-350-3315. Drop a review. Apple Podcasts have some nice reviews that have dropped in there lately. We certainly appreciate it. Oh, someone dropped a bad two-star review and said, like, criticize me for, like, saying I don't want to hear what Zach Smith has to say on this podcast. Don't listen anymore, okay? If whoever dropped that review, you can stop listening because if you're defending Zach Smith, Zach Smith, like, practically took the program down. So if you're an Ohio State fan who has problems with me saying I don't care what Zach Smith has to say, then don't listen because I don't know what Ohio State fan is out there saying, like, you're defending Zach Smith after the result, the effect of the program that he had on the program. It cost Ohio State a million bucks to investigate him, and you're going to drop a two-star review on me? Drop a million one-stars. If that's why you're mad, good. I'm glad you're mad because I'm never going to have anybody talk about Zach Smith on this podcast. He has his own podcast. That's fine. If you're mad at me for saying I don't want Zach Smith's name on this podcast, you're nuts. So thanks for listening, everybody. Always appreciate our fine Buckeye Talk listeners. If you want to join the text, that's great. We will have daily podcasts on Thursday and Friday. We have a couple special things. Special thing coming up at the end of this week that I think everybody will enjoy. But for Is now, it an interview with Zach Smith? <laughs> do you know? I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Oh. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. I'd do it. I mean, I'd do it if he wants to come on. I don't want to – the only way I want Zach Smith's name mentioned on this podcast is he's saying, hi, I'm Zach Smith, and I'm on Buckeye Talk, because then it's on. Um, it's fine. He can go live his life. I don't even care. I don't care about Zach Smith. I care about an Ohio State fan that's, that ticked at me for saying, like, I don't want to talk about Zach Smith here. So I'm not even mad at Zach Smith. Live your life. I'm mad at that guy. I'm mad at the listener. I hope he don't listen anymore. Um, I hope everybody else keeps listening, though. So we have some good stuff coming up at the end of this week. Daily pods. Don't forget that. This is the big Wednesday pod. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, the smaller pods. We appreciate you guys making Buckeye Talk 
part of your life. So for Stephen and Nathan, I'm Doug. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>